Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A view of the U.S. Capitol on this Friday, the middle of the month, August the 14th. This is C-SPAN's Washington Journal. Coming up on our program, Gary Webb, who's the author of a new book called Dark Alliance. He spent nearly the, ta- the last 10 years as a reporter investigating stories for the San Jose Mercury News. Our guest is Gary Webb. He is the author of this book called Dark Alliance, the CIA, the Contras, and the Crack Cocaine Explosion. What led to this? I had been uh, working covering the drug war for the Mercury News for a number of years, and um, this was an outgrowth of a story that I had done uh, about the state of California's asset forfeiture program, which is a program where if the police believed you were a drug dealer, they could come in and take your house and your car and your money uh, without even charging you with a crime. And I had been doing stories on that, and uh, a young lady in Oakland had read one of them and called me up and put me onto a story about her boyfriend, uh, who was a an accused cocaine trafficker who'd had that happen to him. He had his property taken away. Danilo Blandin? Danilo Bl- uh, his name was Rafael Cornejo. It turned out that uh, the key witness against him for the federal government was this fellow, uh, Danilo Blandon, who had been uh, a leader of the Contras in California in the early 1980s and had been a huge cocaine trafficker in his own right. And when I got into investigating her boyfriend's case, I came across uh, Blandone and I came across his involvement with the Contras and his involvement um, ultimately with a major crack wholesaler in Los Angeles named Freeway Ricky Ross. And so I did a series um, that, that said that the crack market in South Central Los Angeles had been created in the early 1980s with the help of this Contra drug ring and um, showed how once crack got hold in South Central, and once the gangs got a hold of it, it was spread from South Central to other cities in the United States. And uh, it ended up being a huge controversy. Base in Wyoming is next from our moderate line. Good morning. Good morning. I would like to make a comment and congratulate Gary on his book. Thanks. Um, I was born in the late 40s. Uh, my own dad was a career Army person. Uh, my stepdad was Navy. And, you know, I just feel like the CIA answers to no one. And it's about some time somebody took them to task regardless. And they have had strange bedfellows for years. Yeah, and, and that's sort of the tragedy of all this is that, and one of the points that the Esquire piece makes is um, how there is a long record of CIA involvement with, with suspected drug traffickers and drug trafficking organizations. And this is a history that's mostly unknown to the American public. Um, what I tried to do, and, and I think we could have done it better in, in the original series, was show that this, is, this situation involving the Contras in Los Angeles uh, dealing dope to the gangs was not an isolated incident. It wasn't an aberration. Uh, there had been reports of CIA involvement with drug traffickers all the way back to the secret war in Laos. There's a whole book uh, written by Professor Alfred McCoy uh, called The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia, which the CIA actually went to court and tried to, prevent from being printed back in the 70s. 
um, about the CIA's involvement with Laotian uh, drug traffickers. And, and here was, you know, th this story, I think, showed um, what happens when you get in bed with those kind of people. Uh, the, the results are, are sometimes unintended. And, and I think in this case, this was a case, you know, this, this stuff happens so often, the CIA has a word for it, it's called blowback. It's what happens when you do something overseas that comes back and blows up in the face of the American public. And in the case of the Contra War, uh, you had a situation where we got in bed with drug traffickers. There was a story, which I frankly never thought I would see on the front page of the New York Times, I don't know if it was July 17th, in which the Times reported that the CIA now admits that they had relationships with about two dozen drug traffickers during the Contra War and continued the relationships even after being told that there was, there was evidence these men were trafficking drugs. An email for you from a viewer in San Diego who says, in the course of your research, what, if anything, did you learn about the following? Number one, Oliver North's contemptuous uh, knowledge of Contras smuggling drugs into the U.S. Number two, drugs being flown from, the CIA, from Central America to U.S. military bases under CIA protection. Do you think anyone will ever be held accountable for these crimes? Thanks for your courageous work. Well, the... The first question on what Oliver North knew about it, one of, the, one of the sources I used in preparing the book were his diaries that were produced during the Iran-Contra investigation. And it's very clear, and the Washington Post did a story on this when he ran for uh, Senate uh, a couple of years ago, on all the drug-related entries that were in North's diaries. Um, he was clearly getting information uh, from his people in Central America that the Contras and a number of the organizations we were supporting down there were engaged in drug trafficking. The Post story raised a very good question as to what did North do with this information. North says he turned it over to the DEA. The DEA said we never got anything. Uh, one of the chapters in my book I talk about a, an incident involving an investigation by a U.S. Customs informant in Costa Rica. He was looking into allegations that the DEA office in Costa Rica was protecting uh, contra drug labs in, in, along the border. Um, the chapter is essentially about how North was able to get the evidence uh, that this in informant dug up down in, in Costa Rica and how this evidence was destroyed uh, by one of North's aides, which it made the Iran-Contra report but a very tiny little segment in the back, and I expanded on this in the book for a whole chapter. The second question about drugs being flown from Central America to U.S. military bases this was evidence that we found in a court file in Nicaragua. There was a drug case down there in 1992 in which a government witness said that this drug ring was using a military base in El Salvador and loading cocaine on Salvadoran military aircraft, and these aircraft were flying into an air base near Fort Worth, Texas, and unloading. Um, I could not corroborate that because all the flight records from that period had been destroyed by the Air Force. But there, you know, there was testimony to that effect in a court case in Nicaragua. And more details outlined in Gary Webb's new book called Dark Alliance. As we continue with your phone calls, he'll be with us for another 15 to 20 minutes. I'm going to go on to another call. <laughs> Key West, Florida, good morning on our liberal line. Good morning. Uh... Hello. Oh, hello. Good morning, uh... I'd uh, like to draw a parallel between uh, the, the author's uh, book, uh, Dark Alliance, and uh, a previous book written in 1972 called The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia by Pulitzer Prize winner Alfred W. McCoy. And uh, he de details U.S. government involvement in uh, the drug trade pro all the way from before the Boxer Rebellion through Lucky Luciano's release from prison to uh, reorganize the Corsican Syndicate and its, uh, the CIA involvement in, in Vietnam. The, um, 
the other the other point I had is uh, is regarding this uh, Lewinsky thing. I think that it mainly draws media attention away from issues that really matter, such as pollution, overpopulation, uh, the greenhouse effect on down, and uh, sort of sort of a sort of a smokescreen, really. Well, you've got to understand it, the media to understand why this is such a great story. It's titillating. Uh, it sells newspapers, and it's a very easy story to do. You don't have to uh, do a lot of work. Uh, th these are handout stories. You go to the president's people, they give you their spin. You go to Ken Starr's people, they give you their spin. You go back and write it up. And at the end of the day, you've really, you know, you, you've uh, illuminated no one, but you've titillated a lot of people. And so that's why sex scandals are such great stories for reporters, because they're easy to do. Stories like the greenhouse effect, stories about... I think one of the biggest stories uh, going today is the South Africa Truth Commission. Uh, they've just had the hearings uh, regarding this incredible program they had there called Project Coast, which I've read very little about in the American press. It's mostly been on the foreign wire services. That is a, a remarkable story of, of modern-day evil at its, at its worst, uh, but you haven't read anything about it because, you know, we've got... 3,000 reporters assigned to the Monica Lewinsky story. Dark Alliance, the CIA, the Contras, and the crack cocaine explosion. By the way, there's also a foreword by a California Congresswoman Maxine Waters. Why did she write the, uh, the start of the book? Well, because this impacted most heavily in her district in South Central Los Angeles, and she has been the leading congressional advocate of a, for an official investigation. I mean, essentially, right now, we've had investigations done by the suspects, the CIA, the Justice Department, and she's pushing for a quote of a real investigation by an outside agency or an outside body. Uh, at this time, then, I would call uh, Maxine Waters uh, from California's 35th District. And we are pleased to have you uh, before us today, Maxine, to talk about uh, the report that is being provided to us by Mr. Hitz. My deep concern about the allegations raised in the Dark Alliance series that my government could have in any way been involved in or had knowledge of drug trafficking has caused me to spend much of my own time and resources to find out more about these allegations. After reading the Dark Alliance series, I interviewed Gary Webb, the writer of the series. And by the way, Mr. Chairman and members, Mr. Gary Webb is here today. Uh, he's sitting right here in this seat, and I invited him to come. Uh, he's put a lot of time and work uh, into this investigation, and I have uh, been working with him since the first day that I read it, and I think that he should be privy to all information as he continues his work in this area. I interviewed Gary Webb, the writer of the series. I invited him to come to my district in South Central Los Angeles to respond to questions from local residents. My community encouraged my investigation and supported me in my efforts to delve deeper into these allegations. I personally interviewed a number of key figures in the Dark Alliance series. I first met with and interviewed Mr. Alan Finster, who was the attorney for Rickard Ross. Then I drove to San Diego to the Metropolitan Detention Center, where I interviewed Mr. Ricky Ross, the young man who was trafficking in drugs in South Central Los Angeles that were being sold to him by Mr. Norman Manessis and Mr. Danilio Blandone. Drug trafficking for the Contra movement was done by some because they were told that their actions were either on behalf of or sanctioned by the U.S. government. 
not included in the CIA IG report are other key findings by the Kerry Committee. Despite widespread trafficking through the war zones of northern Costa Rica, the Kerry Committee was unable to find a single case which was made on the basis of a tip or a report by an official of a U.S. intelligence agency. This, despite an executive order requiring intelligence agencies to report drug trafficking to law enforcement officials and despite direct testimony that drug trafficking on the southern front was reported to the CIA officials. U.S. officials involved with the Contras knew that drug traffickers were using the Contra infrastructure and that the Contras were receiving assistance from drug profits. Yet, they turned a blind eye. Catherine Massey Book Club, the context of white supremacy. Put those giblets, chitlins, stuffing down. Reading is more important than binge eating and watching tackle football. Sixth installment on James B. Stewart's Blind Eye. Man, oh man, last week we left off that smooth, good-looking Michael Swango had talked his way into the med school program up in South Dakota, despite the fact that he checked the box and they knew that he was a felon, he still got in. What do it mean to be white? Anyway, in the middle of last week, we heard about some of the plain dealer reporting from Gary Webb, the late Gary Webb. And I said I was stunned uh, last week when I heard his name mentioned because I immediately connected that with his work, Dark Alliance, uh, and his research uh, evidencing that the CIA was trafficking in cocaine uh, all the way back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, you heard at the beginning uh, that was Gary Webb speaking on C-SPAN in March of 1998. Uh, excuse me, in August of 1998. And then the second clip was 17-term Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who you heard uh, Gary Webb say, uh, wrote the introduction for his book, Dark Alliance, uh, that <clears throat> Congresswoman Waters was speaking before the House in March of 1998, same year. She had, as you heard, Gary Webb sitting directly behind her. Now, uh, Gary Webb, uh, during his session or segment, he mentioned that sometimes the media can focus your attention on things like wayward doctors and Lucy Letby and 
wow, maybe they've got a lot of uh, strictures in place so that we are not really well informed about doctors. And if they've engaged in criminal behavior, they also can keep you to not pay attention to important things like Project Coast. He said that was going on with the truth and, truth and reconciliation trials in South Africa at the time. I said, Project Coast, what is that? Oh, no. We just spoke with Dr. Robert Kaplan in Australia, no less. And he mentioned South Africa's chemical and biological weapons program that was specifically targeting black people. He said, Wuta Bosan, Basson, excuse me, Wuta Basson, white man, specifically targeting black people in South Africa like Nelson Mandela. That is what Project Coast is. That was an international white effort, much like the CIA. Anyway, we also heard Vietnam mentioned. That's in the very song that's playing in the background. They talk about the Ho Chi Minh Trail and all of the CIA trafficking. Anyway, uh, I could have got a double play from Congresswoman Waters as well as the late Congresswoman Juanita Melinda McDonald during that same 1998 House meeting hearing she also spoke and used the exact same phrase that whites at the CIA turned a blind eye and allowed the cocaine to continue to flow come on now we and that should not be forgotten all of this is connected and really talking about the same thing chemical and biological weapons programs going to Zimbabwe to kill black people whatever it is white people having the ability to look the other way white convicted felons getting into med school to look the other way what does it mean to be white in my view if you look the other way you're not exactly ignorant they know he checked the box right talking about swango the late Gary Webb Catherine Massey book club context of white supremacy audio segment one criminals in action In late June, just before Swango was due to arrive in Sioux Falls, Dr. Salem decided he should review Swango's file one more time. This was, after all, the first time he knew of that the university had admitted a convicted felon to its residency program. As Salem went through the materials, everything seemed to be in order. Verification of Swango's degree from SIU, the dean's letter indicating the problem with his OBGYN rotation, the certificate of completion of his internship at OSU. Suddenly, Salem recognized that he'd gotten a copy of the OSU certificate from Swango himself and had never gotten direct verification from Ohio State. So he had his secretary send what he considered a routine inquiry, asking Ohio State to verify the internship and for any other information the school maintained on Swango. 
More than a month later, on August 7th, Salem received a letter from Ohio State. Incredibly, even though the university now knew that Swango had been accepted to another residency program and would be working in a hospital, it said nothing about the medical school's investigation of him or about the reopening of the case by Morgan's office in 1985. It did not send either the Meeks or Morgan reports, both documents of public record. Instead, an associate to Zagornis at Ohio State replied that both Swango and the University of South Dakota would have to execute waivers and hold harmless agreements before Ohio State would release any information. Salem thought the legalistic demand was absurd. Since Ohio State raised no red flags about Swango, Salem considered the university to have verified the certificate. He put the Swango file away. At no point in this process does it seem to have occurred to anyone at the University of South Dakota to check whether the recently inaugurated National Practitioner Data Bank had anything on Swango. But since the act establishing it wasn't retroactive, the suspension of Swango's license in Illinois and Ohio wouldn't have shown up. And as the act was being interpreted, hospitals could query the data bank before hiring residents. No query was required. In any event, the university concluded in an internal report prepared in December 1992. Apparently, there is no medical clearinghouse for information concerning criminal charges such as these. Neither the AMA nor the FSMB, Federation of State Medical Boards, had anything other than information of record. Swango seemed elated by his acceptance at South Dakota. He lavished attention on Kristen, taking her to plays and concerts, the kind of cultural events she'd never experienced. The two spent so much time alone together that the Coopers only saw them once before they left for South Dakota. Swango mentioned that his favorite movie, which had recently won the Oscar for Best Picture, was The Silence of the Lambs, starring Anthony Hopkins as a diabolical killer. He'd insisted that Kristen see it with him, and he himself had seen it three times. "'That's the sickest movie I've ever seen,' Al said, and Kristen chimed in that she found it disgusting. "'No, no, you're wrong,' Swango exclaimed. "'It's a great movie.' Michael and Kristen left for South Dakota at the end of May, taking both their trucks. The night before, Sharon had an anxiety attack. She called Kristen. I don't want you to go, she said, near tears, at the prospect of her daughter moving so far away with a man she barely knew. Kristen dismissed Sharon's concerns, saying she wanted to go. This is a chance for Mike to get ahead with his career. But Sharon wasn't reassured. She didn't know why, but she felt frightened. The day Kristen left, she couldn't stop crying. Chapter 8 Sioux Falls Located on a bend in the Big Sioux River, close to the Minnesota border, is a city of about 100,000 people, the largest in South Dakota, with modest houses, small, well-tended lawns and shady trees, a small historic district near the downtown, and a low crime rate. People there tend to be polite, unassuming, inconspicuous about their wealth, and accustomed to the long, harsh winters. Kristen Kinney quickly became one of the most popular nurses in the intensive care unit at the Royal C. Johnson Veterans Memorial Hospital, where she began working as soon as she and Michael moved to town. She was vivacious, cheerful, 
full of greetings and encouragement for the patients and irreverent comments for the doctors. Did someone piss in your Wheaties? she asked one doctor. My God, you are so grumpy, she told one of the most dour surgeons. Words of these remarks brought visits from nurses on other floors, curious about the newcomer willing to stand up to the medical staff. Just about everyone called her by her initials, K.K. Though she was by nature talkative, Kristen initially said nothing about her engagement to Swango, or the reason she had moved from Virginia to South Dakota. Not even Lisa Flynn, a nurse who conducted Kristen's orientation and often worked the same twelve-hour shifts as she did, knew that Kristen had any connection to Dr. Swango, the new resident who was doing a rotation in internal medicine at the VA hospital. But one day Swango responded to a code on the floor, and after the patient was stable, Flynn noticed that Swango stayed around and chatted with Kristen. "'Who is that guy, anyway?' Flynn asked. "'I don't think I've met him.' "'Oh, that's Dr. Swango,' Kristen replied. Only several days later did she tell Flynn that she was engaged to him. Flynn thought that Kinney was just being modest, trying not to impress anyone with the fact that she was soon going to be married to a physician." something likely to set her apart, both socially and financially, from the other nurses in the unit. Flynn and Kinney became close friends, and gradually Kristen confided more about her life to Lisa, who was older and more experienced. Beneath the vivacious surface, it was obvious that Kristen suffered the lingering effects of a difficult childhood. Her mother had taken refuge with Kristen in a shelter for battered women before her parents divorced. But Kristen had gone to live with her father— in order to finish high school with her friends. A heavy drinker prone to violent outbursts, her father was someone she both loved and feared, and after graduating she had moved back with her mother. Kristen had suffered a disastrous first marriage, then a bout of Crohn's disease, a digestive malady characterized by cramps, diarrhea, and weight loss, and thought to be brought on by stress. Kristen spoke mostly in generalities about her past, but Lisa knew enough to recognize the symptoms of child abuse. Thank goodness, she thought, that Kristen had finally met someone like the nice new resident, Dr. Swango. Swango was almost as popular on the ICU floor as Kinney. He was much more skilled in emergency medicine than most of the other new residents. He was even teaching a course in advanced cardiac life support. The nurses didn't want to think of themselves as provincial or prejudiced, but they also liked the fact that English was his native tongue. It was difficult, especially at first, dealing with the many foreign-born doctors who were showing up in the university's residency program. And, at age 37, when he moved to Sioux Falls, Swanga was older than most of the other residents and seemed mature. Swango displayed none of the idiosyncrasies that had attracted such attention from the paramedics in Quincy. Eager to put his past behind him, he seemed to have turned over a new leaf in Sioux Falls. Most of the nursing staff found him handsome, calm, and reassuring. Several of them nicknamed him the Virginian, after the 1960s TV series hero played by James Drury, because Drury's character was so cool, and, of course, he had come from Virginia. Swango seemed pleased by the comparison and liked the nickname. Swango quickly developed a reputation for being good in emergencies, and always seemed to show up when codes were called. Flynn noticed him at several code emergencies. They seemed to excite him. Kinney sometimes mentioned that Michael had phoned her at work, and if she was having a bad day in the ICU, an unusual number of emergencies, accidents, or deaths, he'd say she was lucky 
and that he envied her. But no one in Sioux Falls knew about Swango's scrapbooks, and he didn't make any of the comments about sex and disaster that had haunted him at his trial in Quincy. Flynn and the other nurses didn't give Swango's comments to Kristen much thought. He was interested in emergency medicine, so it seemed to follow that he'd be interested in their work in intensive care. When Swango finished his month's rotation at the VA hospital, he brought in a cake and a card thanking the nurses for all your help. The gesture caused grumbling among the other new residents, who complained that Swango was just currying favor with the nursing staff and trying to make them look bad by comparison. Once Swango moved on to Sioux Falls' other university-affiliated hospitals, Sioux Valley and McKinnon, the nurses at the VA didn't see much of him. Occasionally he joined Kristen and some of the other nurses after work at Chi-Chi's, a popular Mexican restaurant, but usually Kristen went alone. Now and then he and Kristen showed up at a potluck dinner or other social event hosted by someone on the staff. Kristen wrote her parents, assuring them that the relationship with Michael was good, that they were happy and had made new friends. But no one was invited to visit them at the small one-story house they rented on East Fifth Street. Swango was too busy with his residency, and Kinney was also taking courses to finish her bachelor's degree, besides working extra shifts to earn more money. In October, things were going so well for Swango in South Dakota that he applied to join the American Medical Association, using his real name, giving his address in South Dakota, and revealing that he was again practicing medicine. For someone trying to conceal his past, it was a highly risky step. Unlike the University of South Dakota, the AMA official in charge of his file, Nancy Watson, wrote the courthouse in Quincy to obtain a copy of his conviction. To her surprise, her letter prompted a call from Judge Cashman, who was dismayed to learn that Swango was applying to join the AMA and, evidently, was again practicing medicine. "'Do you know who this guy is?' he asked Watson, somewhat incredulously. "'Not really,' she replied. Judge Cashman told her about the bizarre events in Quincy, and also told her about the suspicious deaths and ensuing investigation at Ohio State. Shocked, Watson wrote Swango, to say that because his licenses had been revoked in two states, his application would have to be referred to the AMA's Council on Ethical and Judicial Affairs for further investigation. As soon as he received the letter, Swango phoned, leaving a message for Watson that he was withdrawing his application. Evidently, he was hoping to forestall any further questions. But Watson mentioned what had happened to several other people on the AMA staff, one of whom happened to know Dr. Robert Talley, the dean of the University of South Dakota Medical School. To the extent he'd had doubts about Swango, Dr. Salem's concerns were eased by just about everything he'd heard since the new resident arrived in Sioux Falls. Swango seemed to be popular with the staff. He was extremely hard-working. He was courteous, even ingratiating, around Salem, who had been so instrumental in his admission. Whereas he had performed poorly at Ohio State, all of Swango's evaluations during his first five months were favorable. The few problems that did surface were strictly of a personal nature, according to Salem, and that was only to be expected in a new resident. So Swango's past had all but faded from Salem's mind by 4 p.m. Wednesday, November 25, 1992, the day before Thanksgiving, when he received a call from Dr. Talley, wanting to know about Swango. Talley reported that he had just received a call from the AMA, 
alerting him to the fact that Swango had had problems in his past. I know, Dr. Salem replied. I've heard all about them in Illinois. No, Dr. Talley said. This was an issue of suspicious deaths at Ohio State. Salem was startled. He'd been prepared to tell Talley the story of how Swango had been unjustly convicted of poisoning co-workers in Illinois, but deaths in Ohio? I have absolutely no knowledge of anything like that, he said. Salem suddenly felt all his misgivings about Swango return. He was shocked and worried. He looked quickly at the residence schedule and assured Talley that he would personally supervise Swango for the next three days. They agreed that since it was the eve of a holiday, they would say nothing immediately, but that Talley would contact the dean at Ohio State, Zagornis, on Friday to find out what the AMA official had been talking about. Salem spent an uneasy Thanksgiving, worrying about his earlier failure to follow through on the letter from officials at Ohio State. After the holiday, Talley spoke with Zagornis. Talley later wrote a confidential memo summarizing the conversation, which he sent to Dr. Salem. I have contacted an acquaintance of mine who was dean at the time Michael Swango was an intern at Ohio State. Manny Zagornis states that Michael Swango was aware of the following areas. 1. That a nurse felt he injected something into a patient which was deleterious. 2. He was told of this instance and he would be investigated. 3. He was reassigned to non-clinical duties during the investigation. 4. He was told he could go back to work, as the investigation was resolved to everybody's satisfaction at the time, and no disciplinary action was taken. Talley and Salem had yet to formulate a plan for dealing with Swango. Then matters were taken out of their hands. That night at 10 p.m. on the Discovery Channel... The Justice Files aired a segment on Swango that used the footage from the earlier 2020 broadcast on which John Stossel interviewed Swango in prison. At 10.20 p.m., Dr. Salem got a call from a panicked staff member at the VA hospital. Five minutes later, he heard from a doctor who, recognizing Swango, was shocked by the disclosures. Salem rushed to his office to review all the files on Swango, trying to determine if he had falsified anything or distorted his record. By email, he revoked Swango's pharmacy privileges and suspended his residency. Just after midnight, he returned home and watched a tape of the Justice Files episode. For the first time, he realized that the conviction in Quincy of his fellow physician had been no miscarriage of justice. On Tuesday morning, the Sioux Falls Argus leader was emblazoned with the headline, Medical Resident Suspended. A first-year resident practicing medicine at three Sioux Falls hospitals was convicted of poisoning six co-workers in Illinois and spent two and a half years in jail, the newspaper reported. Swango is also suspected in the death of at least one patient in an Ohio hospital. Swango's co-workers were suddenly reluctant to talk to the paper. There's a concern, knowing that he's poisoned six of his co-workers in the past, one unidentified resident told the Argus leader. You don't know what he's capable of doing. He seems like a very nice person, but the thing that's always worried us is he couldn't look any of us straight in the eye. A lot of times that made us concerned that maybe he was dealing with some problems of his own. At 9 a.m., Salem called Swango to tell him not to show up for work at the hospital 
and to set up a meeting with him at 2 p.m. Swango asked to bring his fiancée. Meanwhile, Salem notified the medical school's board members, and the hospitals launched a review of the files of all the patients whom Swango had treated. When Swango arrived for the meeting, accompanied by Kristen, he was neatly dressed in a jacket and tie. He seemed puzzled by all the controversy and eager to clear things up. Rather than summarize the Justice Files story, Salem put the tape in his VCR and had Swango and Kinney watch it in its entirety. Then he asked for an explanation. Kinney had turned ashen and said nothing. It was obvious to Salem that she had not seen the program and knew little of the history it presented. Under the circumstances, Swango remained remarkably calm and poised. He still seemed puzzled. He had no idea he had been investigated at Ohio State, he insisted. And he continued to maintain that the poisoning conviction was a miscarriage of justice fueled by disgruntled co-workers, some of whom appeared on the program. Salem thought it was at least possible that Swango didn't know about the investigation at Ohio State. But everything else he said seemed to be flatly contradicted by the show. Salem said Swango's suspension would remain in effect. Salem didn't report Swango's suspension to the National Data Bank created by the Wyden legislation. Presumably, because Swango was a medical resident not licensed anywhere to practice medicine, he wasn't a physician within the law's definition, and the reporting requirement did not apply, a glaring loophole in the law. The next day, the university sent Swango a certified letter, giving him until 4 p.m. Friday, December 4th, to submit his resignation. If he failed to do so, the letter said he would be dismissed. One of Kristen's friends in the ICU, Linda Wipf, was in a patient's room with the TV on when she heard the announcer say, Coming up, a local doctor accused of poisoning. Wipf wondered who that could be. South Dakota had experienced the odd case of a physician charged with using drugs, but nothing like this. When the news resumed, she looked up and saw Swango's face. That can't be, she thought. It's got to be a mistake. She hurried back to the nurse's station. Everyone was talking about the news. Kristen hadn't come in that day, but that afternoon, after the meeting with Salem, she called in tears, saying that Michael had been suspended. Through her sobs, it was hard to get a coherent story but she indicated that although she knew he had been in prison in Illinois, either for a bar brawl or after being framed in the poison case, she'd known nothing about the allegations at Ohio State. Lisa Flynn dispatched another nurse to be with Kristen, so she wouldn't be alone and would have someone to talk to. Later, Kristen spoke to Flynn. She said she trusted her own judgment about Swango. No matter what the media said, Swango was a good person. He really cares about people. He really liked to practice medicine, and he would never do anything to hurt another human being, not the Mike I know, she insisted. Flynn asked whether she wasn't afraid to be around Swango, given the nature of the charges. No, she said, she was angry and upset, but not at Swango. She felt the media were defaming his character and ruining his career. There is no one who is more caring than Mike, she said. In Virginia that evening, Sharon Cooper was taking a bath when she heard the phone ring. Al answered it. She was still toweling off when he came into the bathroom and said, You'd better sit down. What? she asked, alarmed by his tone. 
Al Cooper explained that he'd just spoken with Swango in South Dakota. Michael just told me about this incident from his past, he said. It's all over the news there in South Dakota that he poisoned people. Sharon felt sick, faint, as if she might pass out. It's okay, Al said, trying to reassure her. Michael says it's all a media hoax. Where's Kristen? Sharon demanded. She had an impulse to jump in the car and go get her daughter. She's fine. She's okay, Al went on. Michael had explained that he'd been in prison, but hadn't poisoned anyone. He'd pleaded guilty to battery because he'd been led astray by his lawyer, who said that if he did plead, he wouldn't be given any prison time. But then a harsh judge had sent him to prison anyway. Al hadn't asked Michael what he had pleaded guilty to. He was skeptical of the story, but he didn't want to arouse Kristen's doubts, for fear that to do so might put her in jeopardy. Nor did he want Sharon to panic. At least they finally knew what accounted for the missing years in Michael's resume, the ones he said weren't important. They couldn't believe that Kristen had known the truth, or she wouldn't have considered dating him. But now it was too late. Sharon immediately got on the phone to Kristen. Mom, everything's okay, Kristen insisted. Michael assures me this is just a media hoax. The same words Michael had used with Al. When Sharon asked Kristen to come home to Virginia, she refused. She told them she loved Michael, and that she needed to support him while he fought his suspension. Though he was worried about Swango, Al admired her fortitude. I commend you for standing by your man, he told her. Sharon, too, once she realized Kristen was determined to stay with Michael, tried to be supportive. I know this is rough, she said to her daughter, but remember, God doesn't send you more than you can handle. Then Michael spoke. It wasn't clear whether he'd been listening all along on an extension. This'll all blow over, he assured the Coopers. This is just a temporary setback. The discovery of a convicted poisoner in their midst naturally caused an uproar at the University of South Dakota and in the hospitals where he had worked. South Dakota Governor George Mickelson said he was incredulous that such a thing could have happened. I think the public is going to have an extremely difficult time understanding this, and I don't blame them. Hospital officials rushed to reassure the public. On December 3rd, only two days after the news broke, the three Sioux City hospitals where Swango had worked issued statements that a review of patient files had uncovered no mysterious deaths or other irregularities that could be linked to Swango. Sioux Valley Hospital had reviewed 50 patient files. The VA had reviewed 129. McKinnon simply issued a statement saying it had found no problems. But no statistics appear to have been compiled to determine whether during Swango's tenure the number of deaths or codes at any of the hospitals exceeded the norm. The South Dakota Board of Regents convened on December 10th and 11th to consider a report by the medical school on how Swango had been hired and what steps needed to be taken to prevent such a thing from happening again. Dr. Talley said bluntly that the admission process was shallow and failed. He said doctors at the medical school had trusted their personal evaluations and let them override the felony conviction. Yet he hoped doctors there would continue to judge people on an individual basis. 
The medical school's own report of the regions found it difficult to assign any individual blame for Swango's admission. It noted that all sources are unanimous in their assessment of Swango as an open, enthusiastic, good-natured person. He appeared to be trustworthy. Nor did it fault Dr. Salem, whom it praised for being open and empathetic. But though these qualities tend to be valued in South Dakota, where people often say they are more trusting than residents of many more urban states, they are the very qualities that had enabled Swango to slip past the admissions process. Although Dean Talley offered to assume full responsibility for the affair, the report noted that he was never consulted or involved in the hiring of residents, nor would he be in routine residency matters. Still, the report noted that the admission of an admitted felon was not routine, and implied that the dean and legal counsel should have been consulted, which might have led to questioning the Illinois authorities and to doubts about Swango's eligibility to be admitted to practice medicine in South Dakota. And although Dr. Vogt had summarized the family practice group's rejection of Swango, the report also faulted those doctors for not sharing their information with the Internal Medicine Committee. It further faulted national organizations for not maintaining any medical clearinghouses concerning criminal charges against physicians. The report's writers appear to be unfamiliar with the Wyden legislation or the National Data Bank. Although one of the regents denounced the university's decision on Swango as shocking, and another characterized it as a drastic mistake, the regents recommended only that admissions procedures be reviewed and detailed guidelines prepared. Neither Tally nor Salem was blamed. On the contrary, the regents said that Tally shouldn't let this one blemish lessen his eagerness to serve the people of the state of South Dakota. By the comparatively tame standards of Sioux Falls, the Swango story triggered a media frenzy. Television crews camped on Swango and Kinney's small lawn, aiming bright lights at the house during the night. Kristen was afraid to turn on a light in the house. For the instant she did, indicating someone was home, reporters would start banging on the front door. She and Swango checked into a local hotel for a few days to escape the attention. But wherever Swango went, camera crews dogged him. The Swango story dominated local call-in radio shows and even inspired Swango-themed doggerel. In mid-December, KXRB disc jockey Dan Christofferson sang his own lyrics to the tune of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Swango the troubled doctor, USD says out he goes, and if you saw his rap sheet, all of us would say, oh no. All of the administrators prefer their patients not be maimed. They won't let Michael Swango play any more doctor games. Finally, Swango broke his silence. He compiled a handwritten list of all the local reporters on the story and began calling them to issue a prepared statement. The Argus leader headlined its December 7th edition with, Swango, I'm a good doctor. Swango stressed that he had been open and honest with university officials at the time he applied. I was fully open concerning my conviction eight years ago, he said in the prepared statement. If the university wishes to change their requirements so that that cannot occur again, so be it. But I was accepted into this program after full disclosure, with every intention of completing a successful residency. He pleaded with the public to let him bury his past. 
No one should crawl into a hole and waste away. My conviction was eight years ago. Let it rest. I truly regret all of the problems and all of the difficulties that this has caused everybody, certainly most of all myself. But obviously everyone in a medical community is affected by something like this. And I will say that no one in this town has any reason to hang their head at all, because of the decision or because of my performance. In an appearance on radio station KSOO, he added, I know, of course, I'm innocent. But whether I could convince everybody of that is certainly... I don't know that. But I truly believe that the people who have known me in Sioux Falls, who know what I think of this community, and especially the medical community, and have worked with me, and have helped me to treat patients and care for patients, I think they know that I'm a good doctor, and I'm a good person. Swango also hired a local lawyer, Dennis McFarland, to challenge his dismissal from the residency program. McFarland represented him at formal suspension hearings in December, to no avail. A review committee upheld the dismissal on the grounds that Swango had withheld information and distorted the facts of his conviction when he applied for a residency. At McFarland's recommendation, Swango called Vern Cook, an administrator at the VA hospital who coordinated doctors' orders and prescriptions in the cancer ward, one floor below the ICU where Kinney worked. Among his other duties, Cook was president of the hospital's union, the American Federation of Government Employees, and McFarland had suggested that Swango challenge his suspension on the theory that he was a federal employee by virtue of his work at the VA hospital and thus entitled to federal employment protection. "'Do you know who I am?' Swango asked Cook on the phone and asked if he could come for a visit. Of course Cook knew Swango, given all the recent publicity. He had already noticed him among that year's group of residents. He admired the fact that Swango worked incredibly long hours, often staying at the hospital late into the night, long after his shift had ended. Cook, too, worked long hours. And Cook had noticed that Swango always took three or four of the pumpkin bars with cream cheese frosting that Cook's wife made, and he brought to the hospital two or three times a week, almost as if he were hoarding them. Cook also knew Kinney from the hospital. He was crazy about her. He often thought that if he had another sister, he'd want her to be just like K.K. Swango met with Cook three times before Cook agreed to represent him. He seemed relieved that Cook didn't press him for details about his past. Cook never asked whether he was guilty of the poisoning charges or had harmed anyone at Ohio State. Cook didn't want to know. Swango certainly didn't seem like the kind of person who would poison someone, but Cook's primary concern was simply that the VA had treated him unfairly, whatever had happened in his past. He agreed to take Swango's case, and they were soon poring over the case law and having long strategy meetings at Cook's house, often attended by Kinney. Cook and Swango became close friends. Cook was a Vietnam veteran, a former Green Beret, who had participated in the CIA-led Phoenix program while Swango's father was in Vietnam. He also had a reputation, mostly from his union work, for being resentful of authority. Cook was impressed by the breadth and depth of Swango's intellect, his seeming ability to speak knowledgeably about nearly any topic. The only person he'd met who was remotely like Swango was a captain in Vietnam, who had gotten Cook to read and discuss the philosopher Bertrand Russell. 
Swanga was fascinated with Cook's experiences in Vietnam, often comparing them with what he knew from his father. Swango told Cook his father had worked in the CIA, but Cook couldn't remember meeting him. Swango wanted to know all about the secret operations, intelligence work, special operations. He was especially interested in what Cook felt when he killed someone, asking him about it repeatedly. Cook thought it was impossible to convey the experience in words, but he tried. He hadn't loved killing people, but he had loved the war. He felt he was skilled at what he did. His whole life had been the Army and the Green Berets, and even his family was sometimes forgotten. Swango seemed to identify with Cook's experiences, often saying how he had missed his father growing up, and how Virgil had shown little interest in the family he'd left behind in America. He said he couldn't understand why his father had never explained his absences in terms Michael could understand. Cook thought Michael felt equal parts admiration and bitterness toward his father. He said almost nothing about Muriel. He never mentioned having any brothers. Gradually, Swango opened up to Cook in a way he hadn't with others in South Dakota. He talked of his fascination with disasters, occasionally sending Cook some of his newspaper clippings. Sometimes Swango couldn't resist following sirens to the scene of a fire or accident in Sioux Falls. He seemed fascinated with serial killers Ted Bundy, a former law student who allegedly killed nineteen women, culminating in the murders of two sorority women at the University of Florida in 1978, and John Wayne Gacy, arrested in 1978, a building contractor who volunteered as a clown and killed an estimated 33 young boys. Swango was riveted by a television special on serial killers. Cook didn't make much of these interests, since Swango had so many. Nor did he know that Swango had ever been linked to any suspicious deaths. Swango's and Cook's conversations often lasted until four or five in the morning, occasionally all night. Cook's wife would be getting up for work, and he and Swango would still be talking at the dining table, legal papers and notebooks spread out before them. Cook was struck by how restless Swango often was. His mind would leap from topic to topic. One thing they did not discuss was Swango's medical career. Cook didn't want to hear about it, and Swango seemed all too willing to ignore it. At the ICU, everyone tried to rally in support of Kristen. The charges against her fiancé had sown considerable confusion among the nursing staff, especially since the hospital itself never made any attempt to explain what had happened. It did make a staff psychiatrist available for anyone who wanted to talk about their reactions. But the nurses took their cue from Kinney, who was adamant that Swango had been framed and now was being persecuted. No one could believe the way the media were hounding her and Swango. Every time he appeared in public, it seemed, he'd be shown on television trying to flee the cameras. Though Kinney's spirits weren't as high as they had been before the news broke, she seemed to be reacting well— carrying out her duties as before, and still displaying her quick wit and sense of humor. She even joked about the media and their tactics. She changed to the night shift, which offered a 25% pay raise, and worked weekends in order to help support Swango now that he wasn't working and was incurring legal costs. But privately, even some of Kinney's closest friends were becoming concerned about Swango. Stories of odd behavior were beginning to circulate.
One of his fellow residents was in the hospital as a patient, and she awoke in the middle of the night to find Swango sitting at her bedside, watching her. She was overweight, and she hadn't liked the way other residents had teased her. But now something about his gaze frightened her. She would no doubt have been even more alarmed if she had known about one of Swango's bizarre comments in Quincy. He'd said that he hated fat people, and had fantasized about slicing them with razor blades attached to the tips of his shoes. Even more worrisome for Kinney's friends were reports that Swango began dating another nurse at Sioux Valley soon after moving to Sioux Falls. Swango had apparently given her the phone number of a 7-Eleven convenience store, where she could leave messages for him. Residents at Sioux Valley reported to nurses at the VA that they overheard Swango calling Kinney to say that he was tied up with an emergency and couldn't be home until late, or had to cancel plans. They knew those claims weren't true, that there was no emergency. Then there came reports that a nurse at Sioux Valley thought that she was being stalked by Swango, and might even file charges. Talk of the stalking was so rife that Linda Whipf decided Kristen had to be told. Kristen rejected the notion out of hand. She burst into tears and said, Oh, what else are they going to dig up on him? No one else said anything about these things to Kinney. They wanted to protect her, even as they worried that Swango might not be the person she so fervently seemed to believe he was. But as the weeks went by and nothing further developed, a sense of normalcy returned. The press attention tapered off. When the ICU nurses planned their annual potluck Christmas dinner, the possibility that Kinney and Swango wouldn't be invited, or that Kinney would be invited but Swango wouldn't, never even occurred to anyone. On the contrary, the other nurses encouraged Kinney and Swango to come, saying they needed to get out of the house. Still, the party had a slightly surreal quality. The nurse at whose home it was held was married to a police detective, who insisted on following Swango from room to room to make sure he didn't try to poison the food. At the same time, people were fascinated by Swango. Some guests who were on their way out when they saw Swango arrive returned and stayed for hours. He was the center of attention, seemingly eager to discuss the charges and his efforts to vindicate himself. He insisted he wanted to get back into the South Dakota residency program and, with help from his lawyer, thought he would succeed. If not, he'd practice medicine somewhere else. He was too good a doctor not to be practicing somewhere, he said. Kristen and Michael had come to the party after attending a performance of Handel's Messiah. Everyone else had dressed casually, but Swango wore a black jacket and tie, and Kinney wore a long black evening gown. They made an elegant couple. People thought Kristen had never looked more beautiful. She had told a fellow nurse that her difficult childhood had made her a stronger person. Perhaps, the nurse thought, she was right. In early January, after the holidays, Al Cooper got a phone call from Kristen. He knew immediately that something was wrong. Her voice was wavering, and she seemed near tears. I found something in the back of a picture, she said. What? Cooper asked. She explained that she'd been cleaning around a framed copy of Michael's medical diploma when something fell out from behind the backing in the frame. It's a recipe card, Kristen said, taking a deep breath. It looks like there are poisons on it. 
Al Cooper felt a stab of fear. My God, are you all right? he asked. But Kristen seemed to have collected herself. I'm okay, she said. I'll ask Mike about it when he comes home. The Coopers heard nothing the next day, so Al called his stepdaughter. Kristen, I'm coming to get you, he said. No, no, she insisted. Michael had explained that the card had belonged to his father. She didn't say anything more, but Al's mind was racing with questions, even though he and Sharon still didn't know that Michael had been convicted of poisoning people. What was the card doing in the frame? Why would Michael save such a thing? What would his father have been doing with a recipe for poison? But Kristen seemed withdrawn, unwilling to talk. He wondered if Swanga was listening to the conversation. The Coopers and many of Kristen's friends had noticed recently that when they called, Swango always answered the phone, never Kristen. Despite her assurances to her parents, Kristen's friends at work became concerned. Kristen had stopped laughing and joking. She had become withdrawn and seemed depressed. When Lisa Flynn asked her what the matter was, she said nothing, but then finally said, I found something. She wouldn't tell Lisa what it was, but she said she now thought it was possible that Swango was guilty. At about the same time, she confided her doubts about Swango's innocence to another nurse, Eric Barnes. And one evening she just showed up at Vern Cook's without Swango. She sat down on the couch and curled up next to him, as his sister had done when she was a child. She cried and cried, and told him that she wasn't sure she could trust Michael. She said she couldn't believe how little she really knew him, even though he was her fiancé, and they had been living together for over six months. Whenever she confided any of her own concerns to Michael, such as when she asked for an explanation for the poison recipes, he reacted angrily, even threatening to leave her. Every day, it seemed, she learned new facts that needed different and convoluted explanations. Compounding her emotional woes, her health deteriorated. She confided in Lisa Flynn and others at work that she had begun to experience severe headaches and nausea. They attributed her symptoms to the stress she was living under. Then, on January 13th, Kristen became violently ill in the lobby of a local clinic. She experienced intense nausea, headache, and disorientation, and she passed out when she got home. These are the classic symptoms of arsenic poisoning. Though Kristen never expressed any suspicion that she was being poisoned, she was feeling increasingly desperate, as if she had nowhere to turn. She began confiding her thoughts to a written journal. The first entry is dated January 14, 1993. I don't know where to begin. I don't know how to help myself. I don't know who to talk to. I can say only so much to Michael before the pain is too much for him. Anyone else in my life is too far away, and it gets too tiresome to try to explain and make someone else understand when I struggle to figure it out myself. I know I'm tired. Michael at times must be exhausted, trying to make lawyers, the schools, the press, and the public understand. To look at the volume of papers on my kitchen table and listen to the twists and turns, it seems impossible to make any sense out of this. Every day there are new wartime strategies to listen to and critique. Michael explains new things to bring up in the appeal, and I don't get it. He becomes angry. Maybe my headache has fried my brain. Every day there are new developments, and I sit and listen to him rehearse how he will present it, 
Will it work? I don't know. I hope writing this will help. Maybe I won't get any more migraines. I still feel numb and drugged from this one. It has been the worst ever, and I can't stand many more. I was in the lobby of Central Plains Clinic. I felt the color leave my face and sweat begin. I got tears in my eyes. I began wandering to find a restroom. I was dry heaving and my vision was getting blurry. I was hanging onto the staircase railing and latched onto some woman and pleaded with her to help me. I was vomiting in the bathroom. I kept thinking I feel like a horse who broke their legs in great pain and no way for it to heal and someone will come soon and shoot me and it'll all be better. Michael was angry the whole day, I think because I'm weak and can't control these headaches. He got me home. I passed out and he was gone. When things were overwhelming at home, when I lived with my father, I would get in trouble so I could spend time in school suspension. It was quiet there, no yelling, no nothing. No one talked to you and you couldn't say a word. I loved it. Time out. You didn't have to deal with anyone or anything. For a few hours, anyway. I can't find anything like that now. I don't want to find another job. I just want to be left alone. But one must not be weak, and I have to get us through this financially. Michael's anger toward Kristen often seemed to trigger memories of abuse at the hands of her father. In certain passages, references to Michael's displeasure are intertwined with explicit accounts of physical abuse she experienced as a teenager. After one such passage, Kristen wrote of her conflicting feelings towards her father, so full of love, but a desolate, empty feeling. In entries dated January 15th and 19th, 1993, she continued to complain of depression. I feel I don't belong anywhere, she wrote. It's a constant empty feeling that mysteriously and wonderfully disappears when I'm taking care of someone ill. I hear over and over from my patients, you're always so happy. I love when you take care of me. Why can't I feel okay at other times? Another entry describes a memory of going into her father's closet, reaching for his gun, and pointing it at her head, but being unable to pull the trigger. During the episode this morning, I still wished I had done it. Why do I feel so strong sometimes, most of the time, and it seems instantly I'm beyond the point of no return? On January 22nd, Kristen wrote of her admiration for actress Audrey Hepburn who had become an ambassador for UNICEF. I would also love to be helping. Maybe I will soon, she wrote. But then she returned to her plight. Michael hates the weekends, and I worry about him while I'm at work. He says he feels like things aren't happening. It's two days where he knows he wouldn't possibly hear any news about getting out of here. This place was once an area of opportunity. Now, well, you can imagine how it feels now. Not so nearly the same as jail, but a reminder, I'm sure. He wants out, but can't right now. I don't know how I feel about being here. I want out, to go to another country. But at the same time, I feel paralyzed. Vern Cook sensed during this period that something had come between Michael and Kristen, though neither was specific about what it was. Kristen began seeing a marriage counselor in Sioux Falls, Carol Carlson, who insisted that Michael also attend the sessions. 
Kristen mentioned trouble in the couple's relationship in a journal entry dated January 28th. It's been two long months since all of this began. I can feel Michael growing more anxious to move on. We haven't heard when the date for the appeal is. He continues to write to organizations and send resumes and such, but hasn't heard anything yet. I admire his perseverance. I'm very nervous about our future. Sometimes I feel like I'm pulling away from him. He keeps repeating how he could be leaving me. I feel like I'm waiting for another bomb to go off. In a way, I wish it would hurry up and happen, but I don't know how I'll deal with it. Context of White Supremacy, Catherine Massey Book Club. We'll pick up Chapter 8 just after the journal entry. So we'll pick up with February was a difficult month, Negro History Month, of course. Part of what Kristen described as the longest and coldest winter in my life. Shout to Sister Soldier. Uh, the number to dial 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The number again, 605 605- Three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. The email until justice at gmail. Dot com until justice at gmail dot com put that slice of pie down long enough share a thought or two on the first portion of the reading uh, let's see one of first emails before I get to our email number one since we did not take a holiday for sure invest if you think the cows is constructive, listener-supported, counter-racist radio. Hit the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com, racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button in the top right corner. You'll see the links beneath the button for Cash App, PayPal, and Venmo. Cash App address, cash.app, forward slash, dollar sign, the cows enormous thanks to all the folks who have kept us broadcasting if we get to february for 15 years 11 years of which we have had the katherine massey book club which we don't even miss for thanksgiving so-called now uh email number one get to some of the folks who dialed in as well other folks who have email commentary also uh first email there we go uh, I'll make sure I get in as well there are so many news reports on Michael Swango man it is mind blocking like when they mentioned the uh, Argus leader that's the South Dakota newspaper uh, I had already seen a number of those reports they have lots of uh, news stories on Michael Swango the University of South Dakota paper has lots on Michael Swango 
The Virginia Newport newspapers have lots on Michael Swango. The Ohio State school paper has lots on Michael Swango. It just goes on and on and on. There's so much material on this dude. Uh, it's I'm surprised that more people are knowledgeable about him because so many different states where he traveled and was killing people and doing all this, they covered him locally. So many different regions of the U.S. and even beyond are aware of this dude. Anyway, uh, email number one. Uh, greetings, Gus and Callers. Chapter seven. Number one, Kristen Swango mentioned this is uh, her favorite movie, The Silence of the Lambs. He insisted that Kristen see it with him, and he himself had seen it three times. I bet there were even more red flags about her interactions with Double O that she chose to ignore. She just saw that blonde hair and an MD behind his name, and that's all she needed to know. I will say, I think she had told us last week, it seems she did not want to marry a doctor. So I guess maybe she wasn't as impressed, maybe, with him being a doctor. The blonde hair, for sure. Blue eyes, for sure. But it seemed like when she found out that he was a doctor, like, oh, no, you're going to be married to your job. You're not trying to be, which is was true. <laughs> His job was just killing people. But, yeah. Uh, chapter 8, number 1, uh, page 161. Sioux Falls located on a bend in Big Sioux River, uh, close to the Minnesota border, uh, is a city about 100,000 people, the largest in South Dakota. 86.8% white, 4.2% black, according to the 2010 U.S. Census. That is for sure racially restricted region, which is kind of all of South Dakota. I think North Dakota, too. Actually, I have been to North Dakota. It was not lots of Leroy's. Uh, number two. Uh, page 162, uh, like the fact that English was his native tongue, it was difficult, especially at first, dealing with many foreign-born doctors who were showing up in the university's residency program. I bet a lot of these foreign doctors were non-white, so-called Asian people. Uh, perhaps, if the accents were from Europe, European countries, there may not have been the same difficulties. I agree 1,000%, and even that, that, what shall I call it, veiled contempt? That's how I'm going to phrase it. Said, oh, it was, you know, easier. We could just talk all nice and friendly with old double O, you know, Michael. We didn't have all the strength. Huh? What did you say? Huh? You repeat? I didn't. What? Oh, I can't. I don't know. I don't need towel heads talking. I don't. See, and we said that last week. How did he get in this program anyway? Because they said he ranked in front of all of the people that were foreign. And I said last week, I bet you foreign is a synonym for non-white now I don't know how many people they poisoned and killed in Pakistan and Syria and the Philippines and wherever else they got these old foreign doctors from but we you tell me you'd rather have the convicted white felon who poisons his co-workers than whoever Raul Felipe whoever the person is he she just wasn't born here and got a little bit of an accent. Let me get double O. Come on. Uh, let's see. Three. Michael had explained that he'd been in prison, but hadn't poisoned anyone. At least that you know. He pleaded guilty to battery because he'd been led astray, bamboozled, run amok. 
by his lawyer. Swango is one smooth talker. See the wisdom of psychopaths. Cal's book club selection. Kevin Dutton read that one way back in. I think that was 2017, unless my memory is mistaken. Anywho, uh, reading more important than watching television. Uh, let's see. We had number four. 168 review of patient files no mysterious deaths or other irregularities that could be linked to swango but no statistics appear to have been compiled to determine whether during swango's tenure the number of deaths or codes at any of the hospitals exceeded the norm more shoddy investigations just like columbine a recurrent theme in the book club when it comes to white killers that is kind of like uh, (laughs) I mean, right, even if it's going to be the same thing like at Ohio State, like, hey, we're not messing up anybody's pension and all that good stuff. Like, hey, forget that mess and uh, our plausible deniability. But let's just make sure, like, if he killed 15 people, you know, we at least want to get our ducks in a row in case anybody finds out about all this. We have any lawsuits, private settlements. We want to go ahead and nip this in the bud now. Ah. Man, just eh, eh. water under the bridge. We'll we'll start a new <laughs> man. Uh, let's see, number four. Excuse me, five. Medical schools own medical schools own report to the regents found it difficult to assign any individual blame for Swango's admission. South Dakota, more trusting than residents of many urban states, enabled Swango to slip past the admissions process. Those country folk in South Dakota were not used to those urban slicksters like D-Money, Smoothie, and Shifty. Once again, no one is to blame. No one is accountable. I said, I told Dr. Robert Kaplan that. Remember he was on the program a couple weeks back in Australia, down under? And I said, man, white people don't punish other white people for practicing racism duh but it's beyond that white people don't really punish white people for anything really <laughs> it's just like eh. smuggling crack cocaine with your CIA hookups eh. forged government documents and snuck into the med school program killed how many people who knows yeah <laughs> like man then you come around with niggers how many pieces of chewing gum did you steal? 30 years. Yep, yep, yep. 30 years. 30 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Uh, and inst- yeah, much I can say about that. More to come. Number six. Swango called Vern Cook an administrator at the VA hospital. He admired the fact that Swango worked incredibly long hours. Swango met with Cook three times before Cook agreed to represent him. Swango certainly didn't seem like the kind of person who would poison someone. Who seems like that type of person? Just saying. Cook's primary concern was that he simply had been treated unfairly. He said that's he said that's the primary concern. <laughs> this dude is a convicted felon. Real talk, real talk. 
anybody, if you're a convicted felon, you don't have to dial in. You can email. I know that's not, you know, I want to stick my chest. Yes. Yes, Brother Gus. I want to come out on my Thanksgiving, put my giblets down, let you know I am a convicted felon. Yes. Proud of it, too. I got it. <laughs> you can email it. Use the pseudonym Shifty. Do we have any shifties out there? Once people find out that you are a convict, a felon no less, do they bend over backwards to make sure you are treated fairly? Number seven. Cook, Green Berets, CIA-led Phoenix program uh, in Vietnam, described as a brutal counterinsurgency, 1965 to 1972, run by William Colby, later head of the CIA. 25,000 Viet Cong reportedly killed. Tactics included assassinations, torture, both men and women, rape, gang rape, electric shock, known as the Bell Telephone, our wires, wires to the genitals, both men and women, water torture, police dogs, the airplane to suspend men and women in the air with arms tied behind their back. Man. And then beat them while suspended. Starvation in cages just goes on and on and on and on. And then they got with all that. Now let's get back to this smuggling drugs and heroin. We got things to do. We got to get our niggers back across the way too. Uh, number eight. Fellow residents uh, in the hospital as a patient. She awoke in the middle of the night to find Swango watching her. She was overweight. His gaze frightened her. Swango's bizarre comments in Quincy, he said that he hated fat people that had fantasized about slicing them with razor blades attached to the tips of his shoes. I hope I would only have to hear someone say something like this once. I would, oh yeah, I would hope I would only have to hear someone say something like this once. And then report it to authorities. I guess people just don't do that. If you are white, blue eyes, blonde hair, like, eh, eh. Number nine, Cook stressed two things. Use your own name and don't take a job in pediatrics. Can you imagine if something happened to a child? Please. Please. Anyway, we'll pause there uh, as we get to the rest of the book. Uh, number again, 605 313 the code Five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. Folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Might be heard. Yes, ma'am. I'm right here. In, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm right. I'm an Iowa resident, and um, I was trying to find more information on Dr. Swango as far as the university hospital, um, maybe putting something out about it, the University of Iowa Hospital. So, Gus, if, you, if you've got something, please let me know where I can get that. But... Um, yeah, guys, I'm right here where that guy was at. I'm in, I, I'm, I was surprised because he did, um, he did something in Sioux City, Iowa, like where I am right now, where I live right now. 
and I was confused. Well, not confused, just like, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. Even though the University of Iowa wouldn't take him because they found out, you know, that he didn't pass, he still ended up getting in the medical um, system up here in Sioux City at the VA. I think it said the uh, veterans he was working at, so... Yeah, very disturbing. This stuff happened in um, in the 90s. I was so far away from even thinking about racism, white supremacy, but I don't remember hearing about this guy at all. And I'm I'm up here where where he Sioux Falls, Sioux City. Yes, this is where I am. I don't remember hearing anything about it. But yeah, very manipulative. He's not crazy. He's manipulative. He knows what he's doing. He's in all of his senses. This is his element. This is their element. Killing, murder, anything evil, sinister. This is their, their, they cover this. So I'm happy to be um, reading the book with Cows and uh, Mr. Gus. And thank you so much for letting me speak. Much obliged, listener up in Iowa. Um, in terms of, I don't know how much access you have to the University of Iowa specifically, but I bet you they have information on Swango at the school page because that's one I haven't looked at. But I bet you they have information in the University of Iowa school paper on him since he almost. Uh, was up there hanging out uh, on campus and such, got into their program and then switched it up and went to uh, Ohio State. And I don't know the, because I'm not familiar with Iowa, but I bet you the main paper for Iowa City, I don't know what paper that is, but I'll check once we get off the air. The main paper for Iowa City, I bet, also covered him once this started picking up momentum uh, in I'd say probably by the late nineties, once it like got out, it was on unsolved mysteries and some of the other, the justice files program that they talked about. And some of the other mainstream uh, publications started picking this up. The New York times, once that happened and they recognized like, Oh dang, this guy almost went to school here. I bet you they got something, something I'll take a gander and what have you. That can be, I don't know if you have free time or what have you, you know, over the weekend or what, but if, the University of Iowa paper is available online. Like you can look up the archives for like 30, 40 years back. Just put in because Swango is such an unusual name. You can just look in the University of Iowa school paper archives, put in Swango, see what pops up. If you know what the main paper is for Iowa City, Iowa, same thing. If their archives are available online, put in Swango, see what pops up. Um, I'll even if you have the hard copy of this book, he has a minor reference section in the back. See if he picked any of the Iowa City papers, because he did pick a number from South Dakota, uh, Illinois, Ohio, Zimbabwe. <laughs> I mean, if he got papers in here from Zimbabwe, he might have got Iowa, too. So side research project for us, uh, those who are interested and have the time. Uh, let's see other folks who dialed in. Uh, if you have matter of fact, since we're begging for uh, university stuff, okay, two, anybody, if you have the time, the access, look at the University of Iowa school paper, Iowa City, whatever the main paper is for the actual city, Iowa City, see if you can find the archives for that city's paper. And then I emailed South Dakota. I wanted the school paper 
they did cover this uh, pretty well, actually. Same thing for Ohio State. Man, I looked through now. Ohio State, I mean, excuse me, uh, South Dakota, University of South Dakota is not the same huge school like Ohio State University and huge student body and all the rest of it. So they don't have all of their archives online. Man, I looked at some of the titles when I wrote to the University of South Dakota. They wrote me back some of the titles they have in the school paper. Just one of them. Medical school ignores irregularities. That one's January 27, 1993, front page of the Valent. That's the uh, South Dakota school paper. If anybody, if you are in South Dakota or you got easy access, free time, all of the above, that's one I would like. They have others. If you're really greedy, you can get them all. But that bing, medical school ignores irregularities. That's not they turned a blind eye. That's not they looked the other way. That's not they didn't know the protocols. That's they ignored irregular. Did they ignore Jamal's irregularities? Leroy, Lakeisha, Barack Obama. Did they ignore when it's Negro irregularities, that's what they do. Hmm. Medical school irregularities, January 27, 1993, University of South Dakota school paper, which is the Volant, V-O-L-A-N-T-E, Volant. Thank you kindly if you can acquire. Fresh Princess should be with us as well. Other folks who have a hand up. Good evening, guests and callers. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving to those who celebrate. Um, I don't believe that none of these institutions, that they never did a background check. I don't believe it because every time they, like, go to find out who admitted this person, nobody ever has an answer. Everybody is like, we don't know. We don't know. You have to get a background check to work at Macy's. I find it hard to believe that in every hospital I've ever worked in, you have to get a background check. So how is it with this particular doctor that no flags were raised? Like even when you present your academic credentials, they have to go through the little clearinghouse thing to verify your degree. It's like there's no way possible. He just slipped through the cracks. I don't, I, I don't see it. I don't believe it. Criminal criminal background would like flag. It would, especially if you've been to prison, but nobody ever knows anything. I don't know. It just it. It seems like they're covering themselves, not necessarily. Um, yeah, they're covering for themselves. So that's my observation. That's all I had to say. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Oh, it's for sure. Uh, plausible deniability is for sure. A whole lot of that. Like, man, we are not trying. Nobody at Ohio State. I don't think we heard anybody at Ohio State got fired uh, as a result of all of this bungled investigation. And not, nah, nah, nah. we didn't hear anybody got fired. Uh, you, well, we haven't finished. So I guess we'll have to keep reading for South Dakota. So we'll we'll stay tuned. But at least so far, nobody got fired. University of South Dakota. Nobody got fired down in Virginia when he's working at the paramedics and such. Nothing. Even in Ohio during the trial, 
when he gets a job and doesn't tell them about his pending felony and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, whether they're doing a background check on him or not, I don't know. This I've said this for years and the system of white supremacy like it. It would not surprise me at all if it's yeah, it's a white dude. Yeah. They said that with Timothy McVeigh. He went to get some of the materials for his bomb and it was did anybody check his idea? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It, it certainly could be. We did check and, you know, whatever. We don't care. He's got a felony. We don't care. He's he smooth talked us into it. And, you know, we ignored all the regulations or we didn't even bother to check. It's a good looking white man. You had me at hello. Either way, I don't think it operates that way for Jamal Leroy felony or no. Uh, let's see. Much obliged, Fresh Princess. Uh, other fo- Again, now, if we got any felons, smoothie, D-money, people bend over backwards to make sure you're being treated fair. They don't mess over you just because you checks the box. Please let us know. Now, uh, let's see. Get to some of my notes. We'll nab other folks who dialed in as well. Uh, let's see. Like this sort of thing right here, like, okay, Ohio State, they're not ignorant. They did a whole investigation in the in the school paper, in the local paper. People talking, you botched the investigation and you didn't cooperate and you ought to be ashamed of yourself. All of that. You get a call from white people. University of South Dakota say, hey, we got this swango fella here and, you know, just want to check him out, make sure everything is cool. You had to do, we had to waste all this paper. We got an oncology ring. We could have been going, rooting on Buckeye football, rooting on Buckeye basketball, all kinds of, nah, nah. we got to be in here having meetings and recrimin. Remember they were accusing each other. You got a wire? What's in the briefcase, Bob? What are you doing, Bob? You went to the bathroom? What's in the briefcase? You weren't a wire? Mm-hmm. We got to go through all of this. And then we don't even tell anybody. We don't even tell other. I'm not saying you got to go tell every patient and everybody that comes to Ohio State, which you did. But you got another white doctor at a medical facility. This dude could be working in another hospital, killing people. Who knows? Don't even. T- in fact, they give the old legal listic legalese. And well, you know, uh, if he's willing to sign a waiver, he included in the re- man. The Meeks report was public. All that they got settlements with some of these patients don't share none of that. That's the sort of thing like, dang, that's why if that's the way that they behave, this is just basic information. Yes, I could believe you don't even check his background. You got the information right here. You don't even share. And to see this sort of pattern over and over and over. That's, in my view, that's continued aiding and abetting with Ohio State University. You got a white killer. All of this. He's been a convicted felon at this point. And you still, shh. Keep quiet. We, same thing. We want to make sure he's being treated fairly. We respect his rights. Let's see. 
this I don't I've forgotten how many references to Silence of the Lambs we got because that came up in Columbine and all the rest of it. Hey, white people agree with Mike O. Silence of the Lambs is amazing. How many of those movies did they make? I don't even remember. I think they made a TV show out of Silence of the Lambs too. And Anthony Hopkins got an Academy Award for that movie. Mike O was right. Chapter 8. Sioux Falls Racially Restricted Region. Man, this Kristen Kenny, white woman, blonde white woman. I said she was vivacious, cheerful, full of greetings and encouragement for patients and irreverent comments for the doctors. Did someone piss in your Wheaties? How many urine references do we have in this book, man? You got to pee in my seven up. You got to pee in my Wheaties. Like, Come on. And in a book like this, too, where it's like for real, for real. Did you pee in my seven up? In fact, I don't even want to hear nothing about no peeing in food, Wheaties, nothing, nothing. Everybody keep your urine in your bowels, in your bladder and in the lavatory. That's where all the urine references should be. Incidentally, no one refers to me like this. Vivacious, cheerful, witty, smart. Oh, nothing. Just a blonde white woman. Uh, Talking about Kristen's dad, a heavy drinker prone to violent outbursts. Her father was someone who both loved, who she both loved and feared. After graduating, she had moved back with her mother. We've heard this before about the all of the excess drinking, both white parents and white children uh, and the violence in the home life. We've kind of heard that, too. Even reminded me a little bit of Lionel Dahmer, where I'm not even that vested uh, in all of this. And then uh, the drug use and or alcohol use. Uh, with the parents, heard that from Jeffrey Dahmer's mom, pill popping. Uh, let's see. The nurses didn't want to think of themselves as provincial or prejudiced, but they also liked the fact that English was his native tongue. Talking about Swango, it was difficult, especially for the first. We talked about that already. They didn't want to think of themselves as prejudiced, racist, racist. That's another one. That's what I said before. I bet if these were white doctors from Spain, New Zealand, Australian, Dr. Robert Kaplan, France, Poland, Sweden, Netherlands, just keep rolling wherever you want. I seriously doubt. I cannot imagine a universe. Oh, God, we got all these Frenchy over here. You and Rudy Gobert, get on out of here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's see. Swango displayed none of the idiosyncrasies that attracted such attention from the paramedics and Quincy eager to put his past behind him. He seemed to have turned over a new leaf in Sioux Falls. Most of the nursing staff found him handsome, calm and real. Is Swango that good looking? I mean, really, I don't go around rating dudes, but I mean, really, everybody just swooned. Oh, it's blue eyes, blonde hair. Forgot what I came in the room for. Mm. Okay. Say Swango finished his month's rotation at the VA hospital. He brought in a cake and a car, thanking the nurses for all your help. The gesture caused rumbling among the other new residents who claimed that Swango was currying favor. One, man, I'm not eating nothing. <laughs> Bring in a cake and then we all got diarrhea <laughs> and vomiting like, oh God, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> like, 
I'm not it was this time of year. I'm so glad we're reading this book. They bring in, they got the potluck or cakes, cupcakes, anything. I'm good. Got him bringing in his poison goodies to uh, brown nose, as they say, kissing up. Uh, let's see. And then they go. He, they said now and then he and Kristen showed up at the potluck dinner. Jesus Christ, I would never participate at a potluck dinner again in the workplace. It wouldn't even be a thought. I wouldn't care if they're doing it after hours or nothing. Like, I'm so glad we <laughs> like potluck. Oh, oh, I don't even <laughs> I don't even do the potluck. I'm good. Like, I would have just been thinking before, like, did they wash their hands now? Oh, oh, how much ant poison you got? Yep, yep, never mind. Never mind. Uh, let's see. So the documentaries start to roll. We did hear Justice Files. That is on YouTube. We played the portion. That's the one where they actually have Rena Cooper, where she says they were trying to put words in my mouth and lie at Ohio State when I told them that this white man came in and put something in my IV and tried to kill me. Uh, they say after the documentary starts to come out, people in South Dakota start asking questions. Salem, Dr. Salem, who admitted him into South Dakota, spent an uneasy Thanksgiving worrying about his earlier failure followed through on a letter from the officials at Ohio State. After the holiday, Tally spoke with Zagornas. Tally later wrote a confidential memo summarizing the conversation, which he sent to Dr. Salem. And even uh, all of this shh, is so hush-hush, quiet, and all of that, like, man, come. This should be front and center. Like, the same thing at Ohio State. He's under suspicion for poisoning people, and they're like, shh, keep quiet keep quiet don't don't tell all the nursing staff we don't want them you know causing a ruckus or keeping an eye on him nap 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 shh keep quiet keep quiet let's see the first time they get actual information on this this is so antiquated like Stonehenge he said he had a tape like sounded like a VCR <laughs> like that's so funny um, let's see. Like I said, this is on YouTube now. So, man. Um, so they bring in Swango and KK, uh, Kristen Kenny to watch the justice file episode that's on Swango and his poisonings and such. And so she watches it. They say Kenny had turned ashen and said nothing. It was obvious to Salem that she had not seen the program and knew little of the history. It presented one once again, being pale, the color white is generally considered unhealthy. I think that's happened a number of times where people say, oh my God, it looks so ghastly and had a ghostly pallor and lost all your color. That generally means you are not looking good. Like you might be on the verge of death. Swango got you already? Like, good Lord, what is going on here? Generally, the presence of color melanin is associated with health let's see and not enough questions asked Jesus Christ <laughs> we've been married and having sexual intercourse and all this you didn't met my parents and I'm sitting there like what wait a minute you on the just what justice <laughs> wait, a minute, wait a minute you got the you poisoned what how many oh lord <laughs> whoa 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 not enough questions asked. Hold up. Uh, let's see. 
they do have newspaper clippings of the other South Dakota physician charged with using drugs, but I mean, that's kind of, I don't know, timid? Like, <laughs> we got so many. We started the CIA as peddling crack, man. We already got 50,000 examples of that here. Gary Webb was talking about that. The doctors in Ohio that keep their license don't get punished and they're smoking crack or whatever else they're doing, stealing the drugs from the hospital and having their outlandish parties. Like, we've heard that bunches of times. That's why they got the database that they don't use and doesn't work. Uh, on cue, no statistics appear to have been compiled to determine whether during Swango's tenure, the number of deaths or codes at any of the hospitals exceeded the norm. Real concern for the wealth, health and well-being of their patients. Uh, the medical school's own report to the regents found it difficult to assign any individual blame for Swango's admission. It noted that all sources are unanimous in their assessment of Swango as an open, enthusiastic, good-natured person. Nobody has that much good to say about me. I have never poisoned anyone or been accused of poisoning anyone, although my neighbors did think I was trying to break into the mailbox. I told you all about that, remember, right when the COVID started? Nobody has that much good to say about me. It's over and over and over and over what an intelligent good looking handsome charming wholesome swell dude this guy, like are you serious I don't know anybody that is that cool I don't have that many positive adjectives for my mom like are you serious Jesus what does it mean to be white nor did it fault Dr. Salem, who it praised for being open and empathetic. Look at that. Look at that. It just continues. He wasn't slack. He didn't ignore protocols. He didn't aid and abet a killer. He was open and empathetic. Really, he wanted to be fair to this kindly, enthusiastic white man. Through Dr. Salem's open and empathetic nature, these qualities tend to be valued in South Dakota, where people often say they are more trusting than residents of many more urban states that are very that they are the very qualities that had enabled Swango to slip past the admissions process. All of that is a big fat dollop of horse dung. And I mean, monstrous barrel sized drop of horse dung one we're about to get to New York. So what's their excuse? They're a bunch of bumpkins. Hicks. They're just unsophisticated and they don't know. That's their excuse in New York, too. Come on, man. Ohio State. That's like a student body of 50,000. So what's their excuse? Nah, man. Nah, man. What does it mean to be white? I see another one of my white brothers. One of my white says, I got your back, white brother. We don't just toss a good looking white man away and have so many people say that and accept him at his word. I don't think we take felons at the University of South Dakota. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, okay, I guess we do. Come on, man. If Leroy had accepted Michael Swango, if I had been on the admissions board, and had accepted Michael Swango. They do the investigation and it was me. It was you. It was some colored fella. Colored gal. 
had accepted Michael. So he's like, yeah, you know, I like the cut of his jitties. See the felon thing. Let's give him a chance. Hmm. Uh, let's see. Neither Tally nor Salem was blamed. Man, can with the no, but you don't get blamed. You don't get fired. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> I guess that's why they, maybe that's why they put that phrase together with say, blind eye. Well, see, nobody, we, we can't really blame nobody because, see, we was kind of blind. See, we just, we had a blind spot. See, we just, he took it, he manipulated us, really. See, we kind of bumpkin in nature and we trusted and he manipulated and we found the blind spots and, you know, was able to matriculate on through, see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. They got KCKXRB. <laughs> the radio station in South Dakota, they're making Christmas jingles about all of this and putting Swango in as the, uh, I guess, killing doctor for Rudolph. Um, we got Cook likes this Swango dude. Cook noticed that Swango always took three or four of the pumpkin bars with cream cheese frosting that Cook's wife made and he brought to the hospital two or three times a week, almost as though he were hoarding them. I was thinking like, ooh, wee, is he taking these to prepare some poison? doctor him up and give them to somebody is he smuggle him take him home to give him to his wife after he slips some poison in them oh lord they got these wonderful pumpkin balls oh i ate two or three of them i'm stuffed i can't eat anymore i saved these for you hmm. Hmm. i didn't even have to be careful about that you make some pumpkin bars or whatever and you bring them into work and then he takes them to the bathroom and slips poison in them and put them back out. People get sick and they looking at you. Who brought in the pumpkin bar? Oh, <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> I'm not eating nothing and I'm not bringing nothing either. Like I'm good on all of that. Uh, let's see. Cook was impressed by the breadth and depth of Swango's intellect, his seeming ability to speak knowledgeably about nearly any topic. Again, something about this just. <laughs> Swango is not the smartest dude in the world. His own white med school students wanted him kicked out of the program for incompetence. Remember that? Remember he sat in the class, they told us, and they pointed at the chest, and they said, Mike, what organ is that? He said, uh, uh, ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, help, help, help. They said, the heart? Said, oh, yeah, right, 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 right. I got confused. See, you got a guy. Blind eyes got blind eye, too. See, I couldn't see, see. This dude is not, they're acting like this dude is a genius. He builds rocket ships in his space time and works on quantum fit like what are you talking about he's just a killer period I don't think you would have all these people lining up talking about how smart and charming and smart he was if he was not white let's see Swango this is Swango and Cook talking he's in Vietnam got to Vietnam again uh, let's see. Swango wanted to know all about the secret operations, intelligence work, special operations. He was especially interested in what Cook felt when he killed someone, a non-white person. Asking him about it repeatedly, Cook thought it was impossible to convey the experience in words, but he tried. He hadn't loved killing people, but he had loved the war. Now, even that right there. What do you love about war if it's not killing travel firearm train you'd have to tell me something <laughs> like what what exactly did you enjoy matter of fact not at uh, retract love 
what did you love about this? If it wasn't killing non, ooh, cowbell. We heard that one in the book too, right? Maybe he had a little brown thing, boy or girl, over there that he loved too. Because that's what that's what uh, my man Swango's dad. That's what he loved. <laughs> Didn't even want to come back. Forget that. I don't want to go back over there. Oh, got my little brown thing over here. Let's see. Swango. Oh, and he didn't want to go back to his family either. How many times have we heard that from white people? We heard that from Chris Kyle, American Sniper. We heard that from Lionel Dahmer. People said that about uh, the Columbine. We read that Sue Klebold and Tom, that they were not really vested in parenting. They didn't want to be around Byron and Dill. Like, man, I got art projects and, you know, other things, right? Got things to do. We got Still got these rats we got to get out of the house. Man. Got other things to do, see? White people don't care about children. I'm not interested in be all this is some phoniness too. I'm not interested in all this sitting around for Thanksgiving. Forget that, man. Where's my bottle at? I want to go do some shooting, man. Get my firearm, man. Get out here for Negro Friday and let a few rounds off. Let's see. They say my man Swango, he seemed fascinated with serial killers. Ted Bundy shout out 206. They got the football game right now. San Francisco 49ers playing the Seattle Seahawks right downtown, right here in Seattle. Shout out for my city. Ted Bundy, Seattle's own, put our chest out. I told you they should have a statue on the campus of the University of Washington. So people are like, oh man, yeah, that's right, Ted Bundy. He was in law school up there at UW. Go Huskies, go. It's the weekend of the uh, Apple Cup, matter of fact. University of Washington and Washington State. Go Husky or go Dogs. There we go. Now, uh, let's see. As another good-looking white man, the same way they do all these series and what? Ooh, that Ted. Mmm, such a handsome, good-looking, charming, smooth-talking white man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even the judge said that when, when he got convicted in Florida, the judge said, man, I wish we could have met outside of trial. You're such a smart. Wow. He's so intelligent, smooth, such a good. We could have had a beer, man. Wish you had behaved, Ted. Let's see. They said they would go to the parties and such. Kenny, Kristen, uh, Kenny and Swango, they go to the parties and such. They said the party seemed slightly surreal. The nurse at whose home it was held was married to a police detective who insisted on following Swango from room to room to make sure he didn't try to poison the food. <laughs> this is the nuttiest book I've ever read. Like, I cannot imagine. We're going to have our holiday jamboree. We got, you know, crispy kale. Roasted Brussels sprouts. We got the vegan parsnip mashed potatoes. We got the whole the vegan pumpkin pie. Homemade vegan whipped cream. We got the whole spread laid out and everything. And Swango tipping around. <laughs> we got to follow. Whoa, 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 whoa. What you doing there, Mike? What you doing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just keeping it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, okay. You going to the back? Whoa, 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 whoa. We got the mouthwash. Whoa, 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 Mike. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me get all the mouthwash. Toothpaste, too. Toothpaste, too. Yep, yep, yep. Let me get all that out. Okay, okay, okay. Where you going at now? Are you serious? Why are they invited? 
KK, Kristen, you might not even be invited. Like, nah, because nah, you're going to do the plus one, and, you know, they can't, you know, nah. <laughs> nah, I'm good. I'm good. Get out of the kitchen, Mike. Out of the kitchen, Mike. Out of the kitchen, Mike. Nope, nope, nope. Then, they don't just follow my man around the house. They say people were about to leave. They see him come in, and they stop it. Whoa. Double O is here? Whoa, my goodness. Come in here, Double O. Let me sit down and get a new drink. Oh, let me cover my drink up. But, man, let me holler at you for a minute. Did you see? Did you? So you, for real. Did, now, now, tell me, Mike. Did you pee in the 7-Up? <laughs> you can tell me. You you can tell me, Mike. Did you Did you pee in the 7-Up? For real, did you pee? <laughs> like, what is, who is sitting around talking about this for Christmas? We're supposed to be doctors, nurses, do no harm. We don't even know how many people he killed. Come on, man. Let's see. Once again, Kristen, she doesn't know. She doesn't know anything about him. Not enough questions asked. Uh, and then she says it again. I was in the lobby of Central Plains Clinic. I felt the color leave my face and sweat begin. Once again, health is generally associated with color melanin replete in white culture this is other white people saying losing color i'm ashen pale oh i'm near death oh any hoodles uh let's see i think that's most of my notes for at least the first portion did we miss anybody anything else folks want to make sure they get in from the first portion Yeah, he's. I pulled up a picture of him, even back when he was younger. He's not. Um, he's not as beautiful as the author is saying that he is. I'm sorry, I'm a little bit winded. I'm working out, but yeah, he's not as handsome and beautiful. He looks rather pasty, like you said. I mean, looks like he needs to go out in the sun and grab some vitamin D. But I didn't find him attractive at all. She said he looked pasty. I don't I don't generally rate dudes. I'm you know, I'm all right with that. I'm proud of that. Um, but pasty, pale, not to attract I just normally people unless it's like a model, an entertainer, something like that, where they, you know, go out and deliberately do things to work on their looks and that's, you know, part of how they make their money and their career and such. I just don't hear no like a doctor, a dentist. A lawyer? People don't just, oh, he is so handsome and attractive and good looking. And with, what? And the intelligence part of it. Like, are you serious? They wanted him booted out because he was incompetent. And he was cheating. He was swangling. Remember that? They said he couldn't even, he's so smart. Why can't you just go in and take the test? He got to go out and cram and study and swank. Come on. Come on. Everybody else good? Anything else to get in? blue-eyed smart white man we will proceed uh we are in chapter eight i will just remind folks like man so this is our sixth study session right uh we are like a tad over the halfway point if we had read 
the abridged version of this book we would have been done already how much material and what material specifically did they leave out of that book that's why I think like so all these foreign doctors that don't speak English and we don't want to be prejudiced is that there Gary Webb's report is that they're like how because I mean they took out over half so that's a lot of material to not be in the abridged version of all of this we don't read abridged books Uh, Catherine Massey Book Club James B. Stewart's Blind Eye what a to even thinking on that like is that the best do you think that's the most accurate title for all of this blind eye I haven't heard anybody here who got vision problems racism problems even prejudiced nurses maybe we don't like all these foreign speaking uh, doctors and medical workers but blind audio segment two February was a difficult month part of what Kristen described as the longest and coldest winter in my life minus 14 degrees tonight colder in more ways than one. Her migraines and nausea continued. One afternoon she called her friend Lynette Mueller, who was a nurse on duty at the ICU, asking if she could leave work and meet her somewhere. Mueller was worried about Kristen, so she asked the head nurse for permission to leave and went to Champs, a local sports bar. Kristen was sitting in a corner wearing dark glasses and said she was afraid of being recognized. She seemed terribly unhappy. I need out, she told Mueller, asking if she might stay with her and her husband at some point. Kristen said Michael was talking about finding a job as a doctor in a foreign country to escape all the controversy. Kristen said she'd like to do some missionary work to help people. She was thinking of going with him, but felt she needed some time away from him to think. Mueller thought Kristen was torn by indecision, uncertain whether she was really in love. Kristen spent the weekend of February 27th alone. Michael had driven to West Virginia for unspecified reasons. She wrote in her journal, half seriously, that she was grateful for that day's World Trade Center bombing, because it diverted Michael and gives him something to do. That Friday evening, she watched the tabloid television program A Current Affair, which did an episode on Swango's poisoning people in Quincy. She seemed to take the program in stride. It was mostly on his past and very little of the present situation, she wrote. Michael didn't see it. But then, later the same evening, she wrote that, I found some things, papers, that disturbed me, and I panicked. My mind was racing so fast. Kristen began taking pills to calm down, possibly the antidepressant Prozac, and called Carlson, the marriage counselor. Talking helped, but the next day she was trembling with weakness and anxiety and called in sick. Saturday evening she drank a few gin and tonics to calm herself. She remembered nothing more. The Coopers had been calling Kristen all day, but there was no answer. Alarmed, Sharon Cooper called Lisa Flynn at the hospital, asking if she knew where Kristen was. She didn't. Kristen hadn't shown up to work the weekend shift. The Coopers were distraught. Late Saturday night, the Sioux Falls police picked up a young woman walking naked on East Fifth Street. 
At the time, the temperature was three degrees. It was Kristen Kinney. She was admitted for observation to Charter Hospital, a psychiatric facility, where she awoke Sunday morning. She was released on Tuesday. Kinney wrote in her journal the next day, Wednesday, that everyone should do a stint in a psychiatric hospital just to walk on the other side. I met some interesting people. I couldn't talk about the situation for fear it would end up in the papers. I was numb. I couldn't think. I just sat at my window most of the time and watched six inches of snowfall, looking for an answer. I didn't find one. Whatever Kristen had found in Swango's documents that so upset her and that she felt she couldn't talk about in a psychiatric facility, she was determined not to allow her doubts to undermine her devotion. Perhaps, as with her father, she couldn't reconcile her love for Michael with her growing doubts and the evidence of his cruelty. I got out Tuesday morning, she wrote. Michael came to get me. He's so good to me. God, these past three months have been hell. But I love him so much. I don't know what will happen or where we'll end up, but I know that I love him. When Kristen returned to work, she told Lisa Flynn that she needed to talk to her in private. So they went to the small room the nurses used for their breaks. I need to know she began somewhat haltingly. I need to ask, if I ever need a place to come to or go to, whatever time, day or night, can I call you? Of course, Flynn replied. You know that you can. Then she asked, Are you feeling like it's not safe anymore where you are? No, Kristen replied. But she said she'd been experiencing some strange things and told Lisa that she'd been found by police that weekend walking around in the cold without a coat. She suggested to Lisa that the incident might have been triggered by smoking too much, though she had no memory of smoking that day. The notion might have been suggested by a diagnosis at Charter of possible nicotine poisoning. Besides being the primary additive ingredient in cigarettes, nicotine is also a potent poison. In high doses, it can cause paralysis, coma, and death. Symptoms of nicotine poisoning include confusion, muscular twitching, weakness, and depression, all of which Kristen had experienced. But Lisa found this explanation puzzling, since Kristen hardly ever smoked, and couldn't have had much more than a pack of cigarettes even if she had changed smoke that Saturday. And despite Kristen's denial, Lisa was convinced that she was feeling so threatened and unsafe around Michael that she was having bizarre, even delusional experiences. Neither Kristen nor Lisa nor anyone at Charter knew that nicotine had been among the poisons discovered in the search of Swango's apartment in Quincy. On March 21st, Al Cooper was taking a routine treadmill stress test during a physical exam when he collapsed from a heart attack. He was rushed to the hospital for multiple bypass surgery. The emergency seemed to energize Kristen, giving her something to focus on other than Michael's troubles in South Dakota. She called her mother to say she'd fly back immediately to be with Al, and something in her voice told Sharon that she was desperate to get away from South Dakota. A nurse herself, Sharon knew she'd need Kristen's help more once Al was back from the hospital, but Kristen insisted on coming immediately for the surgery. She also asked to pay for her ticket with a credit card Sharon had given her for emergencies. 
Her mother said, of course. She knew Kristen had to be short of cash, for she had never used the credit card before. When Kristen arrived in Virginia, her mother was shocked by the change in her appearance. She had lost weight. She seemed exhausted. She complained of headaches and nausea. She was using a nasal inhaler to take Stadol, a prescription painkiller. She looked at her mother with tears in her eyes and said, Why have I gone through so much in the short time I've lived? All Sharon could say was, I don't know. But she added, Remember, I'm here if you need me. Sharon also reminded her daughter that if things got too bad, she could seek professional counseling. Promise me you will, she insisted, and Kristen agreed. Al's surgery was successful, though he remained in the hospital for several weeks of recovery. Kristen spent hours with him, cheering him up and telling him how much she loved him. The Coopers couldn't tell whether the cause was being away from Michael or helping her mother care for her stepfather and feeling needed, but Kristen seemed to regain her bearings in good humor. Her aunt offered to rent her an apartment she owned in Portsmouth if she moved back, and Kristen said she'd consider it. The Coopers didn't want to put any pressure on her, but they were desperate to get her out of South Dakota and away from Michael Swango. One day Kristen turned to her mother and said, I have something to tell you. Promise you won't tell anyone? When Sharon agreed, Kristen said that when she went to Michael's apartment the first time, she was shocked to discover that he was living in the bathroom. He had a mattress on the bathroom floor, a TV, a few clothes, a frying pan, and a fork. That was it. His underwear was so worn and dirty that Kristen immediately took him shopping for some new clothing. Sharon was shocked. Didn't that scare you a little? Yeah, Kristen replied. But if you knew everything... Like what? I'll tell you sometime, Kristen said. When Kristen returned to South Dakota in late March, she had made up her mind to leave. I'm feeling more ready to get out of here and strong enough to do it, she wrote in her journal. She gave notice at the hospital and told her friends she was returning to Virginia. Some of them worried that she wouldn't have a support group to turn to in a new location. I need to know that you're going to be safe, Lisa Flynn told her. But Kristen assured her she'd be close to her parents. Her friends at work noticed that she'd stopped wearing her engagement ring. When Lisa asked her about that, Kristen said only, I just can't right now, and didn't elaborate. But she made it clear that Michael would not be following her to Virginia, and that she would spend some time away from him. Even though that year's match day had come and gone, and Michael hadn't landed a new residency, Kristen hinted that he had new job prospects and would be moving somewhere else. When Michael left for several days of job interviews, Kristen was secretive about the trip, telling Lisa, I'm not going to tell you where. Lisa thought Kristen was afraid to say anything. Kristen wrote in her diary, I won't miss Sioux Falls, a place she described as a black, cold hole of depression, but I will miss a lot of the people I work with. A couple of days before she left, her friends held a going-away party for her at Chi-Chi's, the Mexican restaurant. Michael came, along with six or so people from the hospital. Everybody drank margaritas, and both Kristen and Michael seemed in good spirits. 
But when Linda Whipf got out her camera and started taking snapshots, Michael leaped in front of her. Who's going to see this? he demanded. I just want it for my photo album, she assured him. On April 9th, Kristen packed her belongings in her pickup and left for Virginia. Swango had planned to stay in Sioux Falls to pursue the appeal of his dismissal. The Waco massacre on April 19, 1993, when federal agents stormed and set fire to the Branch Davidian complex, diverted his attention. He was glued to CNN with Vern Cook. Then job possibilities elsewhere seemed to be opening up. Swango told Cook that he was looking into two possible medical residencies, one in psychiatry and the other in pediatrics. Cook wasn't so sure it was a good idea for Michael to pursue a position as a physician. He thought it too likely that what had happened in South Dakota would recur once the local media learned of his past. But if Swango was determined to remain a doctor, Cook stressed two things. Use your own name, and don't take a job in pediatrics. Can you imagine if something happened to a child? They'd crucify you, Cook warned him. Michael was upset at the suggestion, saying he loved children. Less than two weeks after Kristen's departure, Swango came to tell Cook goodbye. He said he'd packed his things and was ready to leave. Cook didn't know where Michael was going and didn't want to. If law enforcement authorities questioned him, Cook didn't want to have to betray Swango's whereabouts. Michael told Vern that he'd always admired Vern's writing talent. The two had worked so well together that Michael vowed to see him again. We're going to get together, and we're going to write a book, he told him emphatically. Perhaps a novel. Swango hugged Cook and went out to his truck. But then he came back and hugged him again. He left and came back a second time. Swango had tears in his eyes. I wish you were my father, he told Cook. And then he left for good. Chapter 9 The Coopers were delighted by Kristen's return to Virginia. She looked better the minute she arrived, bounding out of her truck, wearing shorts and a fanny pack. Isn't this silly, she said. Anyone could see I was carrying a gun. Her nine-millimeter pistol was plainly outlined in the small pack. The Coopers thought she had to have been frightened to be carrying a gun. Sharon noticed immediately that Kristen wasn't wearing the engagement ring and asked her about it. That's on hold for a while, I guess, Kristen replied, but didn't elaborate. Sharon was relieved. Kristen moved into her aunt's apartment in Portsmouth. She immediately resumed work as an ICU nurse at Riverside Hospital, where she was rehired by an old friend. She volunteered at a homeless shelter in inner-city Norfolk, where she befriended a young woman with a new baby, showing her how to care for the child and taking her shopping. She also spent more time with her stepfather, now well on his way to recovering from his heart surgery, and with Sharon, who enjoyed hikes with her daughter in Mariner's Museum Park. She stopped complaining about the headaches. It was almost as though the horrifying experience in South Dakota had never happened. Suddenly, all that changed. On April 22nd, Swango showed up in Virginia and moved in with Kristen. 
They came over to see the Coopers the next day. Al was out, and Sharon greeted him at the front door. Swango looked as if he'd gained some weight, which surprised Sharon, since he'd always been so determinedly trim and fit. "'You look like you put on a few pounds,' she said. Swango nearly went berserk, ranting and pacing rapidly back and forth in the living room. "'I don't know why you say these things about me,' he shouted, proceeding to denounce her treatment of him. Sharon sat in stunned silence until he calmed down. When he stepped briefly out of the room, she turned to Kristen. "'What's wrong?' she asked. But Kristen looked petrified. "'Just be quiet,' she said. When Swanga returned, Sharon tried to make conversation. "'What are you going to do?' she asked. "'I want to get everything back on track with Kristen,' he said. It was the last thing Sharon wanted to hear." After Swango's return, the Coopers rarely saw or heard from Kristen. It was almost as though she were back in South Dakota. Dr. Alan Miller, director of the psychiatric residency program at the State University of New York at Stony Brook on Long Island, sifted through the many completed applications for the program the school had received during the spring of 1993. SUNY Stony Brook was one of the medical schools that hadn't filled its quota on match day that year, a situation that triggered an onslaught of resumes from medical school graduates who had similarly failed to connect with their favored choices. A distinguished psychiatrist, the former state commissioner of mental hygiene under New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, Dr. Miller had stepped in for what he thought would be a temporary stint as part-time director after his predecessor resigned. He was somewhat dismayed, though not surprised, by the quality of the applicants. At most medical schools, psychiatric residencies were becoming increasingly hard to fill. With many insurance companies limiting coverage for psychiatric care, and with an increased effort to control medical costs, psychiatrists' job opportunities and incomes had shrunk. Fewer medical school graduates were choosing psychiatry as a specialty, and applications had dwindled, even at SUNY Stony Brook, launched in 1972 as the crown jewel of New York State's system of publicly funded medical schools. The medical school rises like a modernist slab from the fields of rural Long Island. With a lavish budget, it initially attracted many top specialists. But many of SUNY Stony Brook's psychiatric residency applicants now were foreign, mostly graduates of Indian and other Asian institutions. He suspected that many were simply using psychiatry as a way of getting into the United States to practice medicine. Then an application caught Miller's eye, a graduate of an American medical school with an excellent transcript, who had also been a Marine Corps sergeant. He pulled the application from the pile and made a note of the name, Michael Swango. Out of that year's 190 applicants, he easily ranked among the candidates invited to the campus for interviews. Swango arrived in New York on April 27th for an interview with Miller, the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry, Fritz Henn, and another professor. Swango was good-looking, charming, and articulate. Dr. Miller was immediately impressed. The conversation had hardly begun, however, when Swango made a startling disclosure. Looking at the three doctors earnestly, he said, I have to tell you, I've served time in jail. I want you to know that. Miller was taken aback. So this was why such an attractive candidate had failed to gain a match. 
What was all that about? he asked, curious to know more. Swango explained that he'd been convicted of battery in Illinois after a barroom brawl got out of hand. He said he hadn't meant to injure anyone, but that, having been a Marine, he sometimes forgot his own strength. He quickly produced the Restoration of Civil Rights signed by the governor of Virginia, which he said was the equivalent of a pardon. While Virginia had restored Swango's right to vote and hold office in Virginia, it did not pardon him. It could not have pardoned him for a crime committed in Illinois. Dr. Miller found his statement disarming. It seemed so candid. Before he left, Swango gave Miller three references. After making one or two calls, Dr. Miller was satisfied. He assumed the admission staff would pursue the usual inquiries. SUNY Stony Brook did confirm that Swango had graduated from SIU and had satisfactorily completed a year's internship at Ohio State. None of the SUNY correspondents triggered any mention of Swango's now notorious history. Even the SIU dean's letter that mentioned his failure to graduate on time had now fallen by the wayside. Unlike administrators at South Dakota, SUNY officials didn't contact the Federation of State Medical Boards so they weren't aware that Swango's licenses had been suspended in Ohio and Illinois. As in South Dakota, there's no indication anyone even knew the National Practitioner Data Bank was in operation, nor did it occur to anyone to check with judicial or prison authorities or with the police about the battery conviction that Swango admitted, or even to find out what Swango had been doing in the years since his release from prison. He told them nothing of his aborted residency in South Dakota. Dr. Miller and the other doctors who interviewed Swango briefly discussed the fact that they were seriously considering admitting to their residency program a convicted felon who had spent time in prison. But they gave the matter even less thought and were generally less apprehensive than Dr. Salem had been at the University of South Dakota. They had heard not one word about poison. It seemed to them there had been a miscarriage of justice of some sort, and that Swango's crime wasn't related to the practice of medicine. In any event, as a resident, he'd be under their supervision. When all was said and done, Swango was still one of their most appealing candidates. As Dr. Miller later put it, he and his colleagues, all eminent psychiatrists, were entranced by Swango. On June 1, 1993, Swango was formally accepted as one of twelve psychiatric residents at SUNY Stony Brook. After a gap of two months, Kristen resumed her journal in May, an indication that her revived spirits were beginning to flag in Michael's presence. "'I'm ecstatic that he has the offer,' she wrote of the Stony Brook acceptance. "'But the people don't know the nature of the battery, and the fear is overwhelming. I've had difficulty the last two days. I know in my mind it's unrealistic to worry about what could happen, but everything is too fresh from South Dakota.' It would be a miracle for him to complete a residency without it ever coming up. I wish he didn't have to go through this. The majority of my anxiety is watching him deal with this. He does a terrific job hiding his anxiety, but I can feel it constantly. This is an exhausting life. Though the Coopers had seen little of their daughter or Swango, Kristen was eager to celebrate Father's Day with Al. The two couples met for lunch at Nick's Seafood Pavilion on Chesapeake Bay on June 20th. 
The cooper's growing dislike of Swango only hardened as he talked incessantly, boasting that he had been accepted at two medical residency programs and had chosen one in New York. He talked as though he had just gotten out of medical school, hadn't been in prison, hadn't been dismissed in South Dakota, and had nothing to look forward to but a bright future. Kristen listened meekly, betraying none of the anxieties she had confided in her journal. She said almost nothing, which the Coopers thought was worrisome and out of character. It was as though Swango had gained some mysterious hold over her. When Sharon heard that Swango would be moving to New York State, she asked Kristen, "'Will you be going with him?' "'No, not for a while, at least,' she said. Despite Swango's enthusiasm, Al Cooper was skeptical. "'Michael, after all these problems, what if they hear about them?' he asked. "'What they don't know, they don't know,' Swango confidently replied. Later, when Al and Sharon returned to their car, they spoke of their unease about Kristen's demeanor. "'Something's wrong,' Al said. Michael left for Long Island a week later. Kristen's ambivalence is evident in a journal entry written that day. Michael departed for his residency. A month ago, I wanted him to go. I felt ready for him to go. I just wanted to get the separation over with. He's been gone five hours now, and I miss him so much. I went to see the movie Cliffhanger, and when I came out, I looked for Michael at my side. I thought I was in Sioux Falls. I was so confused. I didn't know where I was. I started crying. I don't know where to stuff all this anger. I feel so lonely here. I feel beaten, so beaten. I have so much to do, I just don't feel like doing anything. I have two hundred dollars left in my checkbook. I'm financially drained, and mentally as well. Still, she added, I know it will get better. Michael Swango's residency began on July 1st. He rented a room in Center Reach, Long Island, from Carol Tamburo, a landlady who often rented to people connected to the university. He had introduced himself over the phone, and she had agreed to let him spend one night there without having met him. She quickly offered him a lease once they met. She found him charming and personable, and was impressed that he was a doctor, though she found it odd that he insisted she call him Mike rather than Dr. Swango. For his first rotation, Swango, or Kirk, as he introduced himself to some people, Kirk being the name of the starship captain in Star Trek, was assigned to internal medicine at the sprawling modern Veterans Administration Hospital in Northport, Long Island, one of the two hospitals affiliated with the Stony Brook Medical School. A nineteenth-century whaling port, Northport is a quaint town on the north shore of Long Island Sound that seems far from New York City, just an hour's drive away. Swango moved into a dormitory provided by the VA for hospital residents, and he also rented a storage room from the VA. Though he now had hospital privileges, he had even boasted to his landlady that he had access to every medicine chest in the hospital. No one thought to check his background with the National Practitioner Data Bank. Thanks to his recent work experience in South Dakota, Swango was more poised and skilled than most of his colleagues and he garnered favorable reviews from the medical school faculty. Some of them teased Dr. Miller, saying, Why is a guy this good in psychiatry? He should be in internal medicine. One of Swango's first patients at the VA hospital was Dominic Buffalino, 
an organizer for the Long Island Republican Party, World War II veteran, and former construction supervisor for Grumman Aircraft. He had entered the VA hospital after he developed some lung congestion. Although his family thought he was suffering from little more than a severe cold, they did fear the condition might develop into pneumonia. On July 1st, the day Swango began his residency, Buffalino was resting comfortably, his condition stable. But he was running a fever, and an IV line was supplying antibiotics in an effort to curb his infection. His wife, Teresa, was visiting with him, as she had every day. The couple had never spent a day apart in their entire marriage. Several doctors had been in and out of the room, but then a young resident arrived, introduced himself as Dr. Michael Swango, and indicated he would now be the primary doctor in charge of her husband. Teresa found him pleasant and reassuring. The next morning, Teresa was leaving the Buffalino's home in nearby Huntington Station to return to the hospital when the phone rang. She went back inside to answer it. "'I'm sorry to inform you your husband is dead,' Dr. Swango said. "'We didn't expect him to expire.' Teresa was stunned by the news. She began to sob hysterically. "'Stay on the phone,' Swango said. "'Don't hang up. Talk to me.' Finally, Teresa was able to ask if she could come to the hospital. "'By all means,' Swango replied. "'Come up here.' When Teresa and her brother-in-law, Andrew Buffalino, arrived at the hospital, Swango was waiting there to see them. They went into the room where Dominic's body still lay, and Teresa again lost her composure. The rest of the day was a blur, but she later remembered hearing something to the effect that her husband had been paralyzed. She couldn't understand why someone suffering from pneumonia would be paralyzed. Pneumonia to paralysis. That's what we will pick up at chapter 9. As we move on through, uh, we are, I'd say at this point, at the halfway point, or a little beyond the halfway point, uh, but chugging on through James B. Stewart, Blind Eye. Is that accurate? Keep bringing that up. Is that accurate? Number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605 313 the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The email untiljustice at gmail.com. Round out our emails and now our folks who dialed in as well. I see email. Uh, first email that we got. Uh, now we can finish up the rest of it that we move a little bit further ahead. Uh, continues number chat more from chapter eight. Cook stress two things. Use your own name. Don't take a job in pediatrics. Can you imagine if something happened to a child? They crucify you. Cook warned him. Michael was upset at the surgeon saying he loved children. I have a crazy idea, Al. How about telling him you should not be anywhere near patients? 
any patience ever, and I'm going to call the police. That's, yeah, you're talking crazy. <laughs> you're talking. We don't call the police on white people. That's Arenthal James. 10. Page 183, less than two weeks after Christine's departure, Swango came to tell Cook goodbye. Cook didn't know where Michael was going and didn't want to. (laughs) If law enforcement authorities questioned him, Cook didn't want to have to betray Swango's whereabouts. No snitching, of course. I just found that shocking. I mean, he's a convicted felon. It's not like this is just rumor and you know scuttlebutt around the office and people make up all kinds of crazy things all the time like no convicted felon poisoning white paramet like even that like it's not like he was out just poisoning random people and they didn't get along with me and but these are paramedics that I'm poisoning and even that eh 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 white brother where you Ixnay, don't tell me where you're going that way the police come I don't know I was <laughs> come on come on that is not turning a block he that's all of that is willful aiding and abetting chapter 9 page 185 SUNY Stonebrook with many insurance companies limiting coverage for psychiatric care and with an increased effort to control medical costs psychiatrics psychiatrists job opportunities and incomes had shrunk stony brook population 13,740 88.6% white 1.7% I guess non-white clearly there is a great need for psychiatric care but in the system of white supremacy racism profits over patient care is one of the goals it seems absolutely and that's what I mean too so Stony Brook, New York, you think these are rural country bumpkins who just aren't sophisticated enough to, I don't know, check a criminal background, uh, work history, felony convictions. I don't know. Maybe they don't have that in New York State. Uh, Number two. Before he left, Swango gave Miller three references. After making one or two calls, Dr. Miller was satisfied. I wonder who were the references and what did they say during the phone call? If he even talked to anyone, that even could be, that's what I mean. Like I just, we've read enough. I've seen enough in total. It would not surprise me at all. If he didn't call anyone, you said who the reference went. Okay. Eh, I don't need to call. He's a good dude. Let's roll. Number three for his first rotation, Swango or Kirk, as he introduced himself to some people, Kirk being the name of starship captain in Star Trek why is a guy this good in psychiatry he should be in internal medicine maybe signaling I'm the captain I'm in charge absolutely Uh, let's see four Swango told Cook he was using a false name and had lied about his conviction defying Cook's advice Cook was furious with him Mike what the F are you doing Still no snitching. <sighs> Heard that, and that's a big pattern in the book, too. Ohio State, same thing. In fact, they don't even, okay, you don't have to go to the police, right? If it's, you know, I don't want to see him get locked up and anally raped and everything else that they do to Leroy and Jamal. But at least, you know. Eh, he might kill some white patients. We got that white gymnast and all right. Like, eh, 
that's probably not a good thing. Let's make sure he doesn't kill anybody else. Let's at least report him to, you know, the state medical board and all of that. Keep an eye on this dude. Nah, nah, nah. We don't do that either. Nah. We'll pause there. Let's see. Other folks, uh, email untiljustice at gmail.com. The number 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, folks who dialed in made it through the so-called holiday safely still got time prepare for Negro Friday thoughts on the second portion of blind eye to share folks who dialed in second thoughts it's pretty disturbing um, talk about evil too I mean he calls the lady after I'm assuming he killed the guy. Come on, let's be honest. He called the lady's wife talking about, oh, yeah, he died. Um, and she's just having a hard time with it. And she, he's like, no, no, don't hang up the phone. Stay with me. Stay with me. Tell, tell me what happened. What are you feeling right now? What are your feelings? This guy is just the worst. And to know that, you know, this isn't like, a, a one-off or a two-off, or we caught a doctor back in the 90s that was on some shady stuff, but now we've cleaned it up. No, right now in 2023, you know, be careful, guys. Let's, and me at the top of the list, let's work on our health so we can try to stay um, away from these crazed, you know, lab coat medical people. Well said, well said uh, that that has been an enormous reminder for me in reading all of this. Absolutely. I mean, hey, we you know heard that recommendation before and take really good care of ourselves so we don't have to end up in the clutches of these racist healthcare practitioners, medical apartheid for sure. But man, yes, you do not want to be in Swango's clutches and same thing we've been saying if you have to go to the hospital, doctor, whatever it is, take someone with you who is not sick. They are alert. Eyeball, they do not have a blind eye. And they can ask questions like it's great if they have any sort of medical expertise, that sort of thing. But if they can just be cognizant, awake, ask a question or what you got in that syringe. What's that supposed to do? Is there a better option? What's the prognosis? And just sitting there, I think for some of this, if someone had just been sitting there, I think that could have aided. Now, he did usher one woman out when she was there, but ask questions. I was like, what are you doing that? Why do I have to leave? What does she need this for? What is this supposed to do? <laughs> like, question. Why can't I stay here? Question, question, question. And we've had that before. What our, our caller in Iowa said where he calls uh, the patient after he's killed. Well, we think he's probably killed somebody else. And he calls like, oh, man, just hang with me. Don't leave. Oh, yeah, he, I know he was, you know, par paralyzed, but now he's dead. <laughs> Wait a minute. How we get from, that's not funny, but I mean, dang, how we get from paralyzed to, 
What? That's the gymnast too. Remember that before the white woman? She came in. Yeah, I think she's doing all right. She's gonna make it. What? Uh, yep, yep. She didn't make flatline. Yeah, sorry. She like what? What? And then he want to get all the ghoulish detail. Oh yes, how are you doing? And just hang in, hang in. Oh yes, how are you? Mm hmm, mm hmm, mm hmm. How's it? Mm hmm, mm hmm. I know, I know. It hurt. Mm. Yeah, he will be missed. Yes, yes. Worst of the worst. Agree and deceiving all the way through. All the way through. Uh, did we miss anybody else? Any other folks with observations, thoughts on uh, old double O Swango? Maddie Hurt? Yes, ma'am. Fresh Princess. Uh, I found it interesting that his friend told him to not go into pediatrics. So I felt like they kind of maybe suspected him, but he was definitely told that if you go into peds, you know, and something happens, they're going to crucify you. So I I feel like people were reasonably suspicious of him, but he just managed to not get caught. And it also appears that he was narcissistically abusing his fiance. And that also poured out to the patient in terms of him wanting to hear all the gory details about how their loved ones suffer or how upset they are and how they're feeling um, to have that level of power and control over people. So those are my observations. Thank you. Much obliged, fresh princess. That's why I keep saying, you know, I don't think it's it's a blind eye because it seems like quite a few people seem to be very aware. And hey, I mean, it's not rocket science. It's not like it would have taken some big, big genius IQ to, you know, wait a minute. I think this went like you got racks of paper across the country and criminal felony convictions and revocation of his medical license i mean duh (laughs) it would seem like yeah i think this guy probably has poisoned killed many folks uh don't go into pediatrics and don't tell me where you're going (laughs) what in (laughs) what in the world do they do this for niggers they think you stole the whole punch from the office and they're going to, you know, I don't even, don't worry about it. <laughs> I guess, it's like the less you, the less you have to tell me, the less I have to tell the police. Like he didn't want the information just in case somebody circled back to him and asked. Like he didn't want to get involved at all. That's the Hippocratic Oath. That's what they, that's what you learned in med school, right? Morals ethics doing the right thing and hey I, 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 we all are supposed to pretend we care about children right we don't want to see them get arsenic and all <laughs> what about the old people <laughs> like, <what> about, <laughs> i mean you killed you got seen all that with that ah, worthless negro rape yeah, yeah what about the old people though rena cooper she was elderly what about them like wait a minute you shouldn't be going in here killing old people either man like that's not cool man come on cut all that <laughs> like man It's crazy. This is the craziest thing I've ever read in my life, man. 
Let's see. Other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary, which is saying something, because we read Columbine. We just read Jeffrey Dahmer. Come on. Uh, let's see. Other folks, uh, commentary to share. Can I be heard? Mama C, not a woke baby. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Good evening, Gus. Good evening, Cal's listeners. I just have a couple um, little bits to share. First and foremost, uh, a pattern that we see is Swango excels during the probationary period um, on the job or the honeymoon phase, like in the, when he's in relationship with others to establish a positive reputation with employers, his girlfriends, and any other people. And then after after they have this um, um, this this idea of who he is, then anything um, that contradicts contradicts that, then they they just don't want to believe it. And imagine how many pages this book would be if it detailed all the other poisonings and all the other deaths that Swingle had committed after the publication date of Blind Eye. Lastly, uh, we see another incident uh, where he retaliates against his fiancee, Kristen Kinney, because, you know, she was discovering things, um, you know, unpacking uh, details about, about his past and who he was, and she's in complete disbelief about it even though she's talking to like her parents and talking to um, her coworkers about what's going on. And Swango poisons her um, over, over several weeks or months uh, with arsenic and maybe other, other poisons. Um, she, she begins suffering from nausea, severe headaches and migraines, disorientation. She's vomiting. She's looking for help. Um, and all these symptoms just magically disappear when she finally leaves South Dakota and goes back to Virginia to be near her parents. Um, the Coopers, even though they they were alerted to all the incongruencies um, that Swingo was um, sharing with them uh, and the evidence that Kristen had discovered about the murders or the poison, for example, like that recipe card that fell out of his diploma, um, I, I think that they knew something was wrong, but they just couldn't convey to her like, hey, you know, this is a, a situation that you probably want to leave and you, you shouldn't have any any um, relationship with him. You should discontinue that. And they were just hoping that she would make the choice for herself. But um, I was a little concerned about, uh, I guess, her state of mind in the journal entries or the diary, you know. I guess um, after so much time that Swango was just able to completely disarm her and, you know, she, her world just revolved around his existence. And with that, I'll end my share. Much obliged, Mama C. That is a tough one because I don't have children and all, but I, I know even from the dynamic of counter-racism, right, like having non-white people who say you shouldn't have sexual intercourse with a white person and it's a non-white person in one of these tragic arrangements and you try to tell them. And sometimes when you tell them that they get upset 
And that drives them even more to defend that relationship. And I'm not going to leave. And I know, and this person really likes me and she's awesome or he's awesome. And I'm not going to do it. And you don't know it. Us against that type of thing. So it can be tough. Like in those type of situations where you think like there is something wrong with this person. Like you really need to leave him. You're in danger and he's not cool and blah, blah, blah. And all that. And eh, man, uh, I think we said last week, be honest parents be honest with your children if you see something odd you see some red flags at least verbalize it at least plant the seeds so that they know dang they did tell me that they think something is wrong with this dude like hmm hmm so frequently we do not want to believe that about that person we got our feelings into it and all emotional about it that's why fullest ask questions and lots of questions lots and lots and lots so you don't end up like this when you're finding out things way down like whoa you in prison for whoa 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 and her being poisoned on all of this like oh my god like we don't even know like so does this smart intelligent white man does he know like poisons that maybe it doesn't kill you, but it has some sort of effect on your mental health. Psychi- where she's depressed and all of that. Like Jesus Christ, if you have like low grade exposure to certain poisons, does it do that? You get irritable and can't- man, man, white people are extraordinarily dangerous. much obliged uh mama see and the retaliation too like we've had so much of that where he's got i'll fix you why you did this i'm gonna get you back and let me wait till i get your tea when you turn around that sort of old thing <laughs> like man what is that what is that how common is that well i told you that vindictiveness man let's see get a few of my notes before we wrap up so we can all get back to turkey legs and such uh let's see Kristen. She says, she says she told her parents the first time she went to Michael's apartment, she was shocked to discover that he was living in the bathroom. He had a mattress on the bathroom floor, a TV, a few clothes, a frying pan and a fork. WTH man she didn't even mention scrapbooks what that alone would be cause for a lot of questions like what 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 a fork what 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 is going on man I thought you're a doctor like what is this man you're living in the bathroom what is going on what is questions more questions more questions more questions Uh, they get to Sioux Falls in South Dakota Kristen writes in her diary, I won't miss Sioux Falls, a place where she described as a black, cold hole of depression. (laughs) Whoa, whoa. It's 86% white man. No. And it snows all the time. No. White. All that association with depression and bleakness with black. No. And Michael Swango is at the root of all this. This is a charming white man. It's nothing black about any of this. Uh, She says, 
Swango was determined to remain a doctor. Cook stressed two things. Use your own name. We already got that one. Uh, less than two weeks after Christine's departure, Swango came to tell Cook goodbye. He said he packed his things and was ready to leave. Cook didn't know and does all of that. Deliberate Swango hugged Cook and went out to, to his truck, but then came back and hugged him again. He left and came back a second time. Swango had tears in his eyes. I wish you were my father. Like all of this homo social bonding at minimum and with another white killer he was in Vietnam reminds him of his father you know he had a dad they went through that whole experience a dad similar to some degree even that is kind of you know what what is this bond around like I think his dad kept the scrapbooks of all these macabre accidents and such and so this guy was in Vietnam and seems alright with him maybe Mike is a killer but that's my dude Mike I like you so charm. like come on come on uh, chapter nine. Kristen gets back to VA with her parents, thinking about wrapping all this up and moving forward. It's been so stressful. Uh, she moves back to her aunt's apartment in Portsmouth. She immediately resumed work as an ICU nurse at Riverside Hospital, where she was rehired by an old friend. See, we get that nepotism again, where white people, they got homies and friends, even when they don't have friends, just them being white, they can be hired for a job doesn't matter if they're qualified apparently doesn't even matter if they have felony convictions who cares I got homies who will turn a blind eye or just hook me up outright like oh you need a job no problem we got it we got it (laughs) don't tell anybody about that felony shh let's see Uh, a distinguished psychiatrist the former state commissioner of Mental hygiene under New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller. This is talking about Dr. Alan Miller. This is one where I thought, too, like, dang, Nelson Rockefeller, isn't he the one that put all those uh, draconian drug laws in effect in New York State where you got all these black people ended up serving all kinds of time and such for low-level drug convictions. Meanwhile, one, you got all these doctors who are stealing medication, putting saline into the IV line for patients. And you got old convicted felon Swango. Rockefeller laws didn't stop them, huh? What do it mean to be white? They say uh, on the application. Oh, man. So Miller's going through the applications. We got it again. He said uh, the application caught Miller's eye. Oh, wait, wait, wait. The medical school medical school rises like a modernist slab from the fields of rural Long Island with a lavish budget, it initially attracted many top specialists, but many of SUNY Stonebrook's psychiatric residency applicants now were foreign, mostly graduates of Indian and other Asian institutions. He suspected many were simply using psychiatry as a way of getting into the United States to practice medicine. Even that I found stunning because we got it again. It seems like there is a like low grade, what they call prejudice racism we got all these foreign speaking Japs and slant eyes and dark people coming in here ooh look blue eyed and see that makes it even more because they keep telling us every other paragraph blonde blue eyed good looking smooth talking they don't describe all these old slant eyed dark foreign doctors as smooth talking see that doesn't see got to emphasize that again so if these folks it even sounds like it's some 
native nativist sentiment like these folks just coming over here so they can get in the country why don't we get that wall up man they're just coming over here so they can practice medicine is something wrong with that that how about this that's better than wanting to come just so that I can poison and kill people right it continues Uh, Miller pulled the application from the pile and made a note of the name Michael Swango out of the year's 190 applicants he easily ranked among the candidates invited to the campus for interviews I strongly contend the only reason that he easily outranked everybody is because he is white there's nothing that I've read about this dude's medical background that oh my god he's a genius he's overqualified look at oh we've got are you serious are you you can't even identify the heart on an x-ray we'll get to the felon part later we'll get to the prison part later we'll get to all these dismissals from programs late like are you serious that's what stands out about this applicant we got Apu see him all these other folks swango swango was good looking charming I stopped in this book syringe and all of that I told you we started this book with him putting a needle in the rectum of an African male the word needle is in this book 18 times the word charm or charming or one derivative of that term is in this book 17 times needle 18 charm 17 no one is referred to as charming in this book I don't think other than Michael Swango It continues. Dr. Miller was immediately impressed. The conversation had hardly begun, however, when Swango made a startling disclosure, looking at the three doctors earnestly, earnestly. Are you serious? Earnestly. He said, I have to tell you something. I served time in jail. I want you to know that. Miller was taken aback. So this was why such an attractive candidate had failed to gain a match? What was that all about? Swango explained that he'd been convicted of battery in Illinois after a barroom brawl got out of hand. He said he hadn't meant to injure anyone, but that having been a Marine, he sometimes forgot his own strength. Now that is a whopper of a lie. I just don't know my own strength sometimes, you know. I've been doing my push-ups and things and my head just slipped and ooh. You know how it happens sometimes. You don't even, oh. Once again, I mean, this white man is so charming and attractive and blonde and white. We don't even check his story. Okay, see, didn't know his own strength. Sounds good to me. He says, uh, as in South Dakota and Ohio State. There's no indication anyone even knew the National Practitioner Data Bank was in operation. Now that, like, man, that's kind of egregious. Like, that's what I mean. Like, I could totally believe maybe they don't check for white people. Like, even now, 2025, 
maybe they don't really check that def- uh, that deep for white people's references maybe they do and they look and they just don't care and all that they turn a blind eye but I could totally believe that they just ignore we'll deal with that if it pops up down the road uh, let's see In any event, as a resident, he'd been under their supervision. When all was said and done, Swango was still one of the most appealing candidates. As Dr. Miller later put it, he and his colleagues, all eminent psychiatrists, were entranced by Swango. Are you serious? Like, they're making this dude out like he's a sorcerer, and I just, I reject that. Like, no, no, no. I don't think they were under a spell. I don't think he worked some sort of incantation. I think white people look out for other white people. They don't look that if this had been Jamal, he could have been smooth talking all the same references, everything else. They would have looked if this had been double O Welsing, they would have looked. It could have been double O Welsing with no conviction. Just you wrote that nutty paper about white genetic annihilation and suntanning. Like get on out of here. Which is about what she told us, right? Didn't she get fired? from Howard University didn't get tenure she didn't say it was because they we got allegations that you were doing something suspicious with our iced tea wells and get on out of here she didn't say that let's see despite Swango's enthusiasm Al Cooper was skeptical Michael after all these problems what if they hear about them he asked what they don't know they don't know now see that sort of arrogance that's I'm a white man. What are you talking about? Find out what? They didn't even ask. They don't even check. And if they do, I'll do the same thing I did all over again. I'll go in and lie. I got some white friends. Blue eyes. That doesn't even matter. Let's see. Michael Swango's residency began on July 1. He rented a room in Center Reach, Long Island from Carol Tom Burrow, a landlady who often rented to people connected to the university. He had introduced himself over the phone and she had agreed to let him spend one night there without having met him. Even that seems a little like, hmm, you do this for white people? You just let them come hang out? Excuse me, for if this had been Jamal, you come hang out. I'll need to meet you. Check no ID, nothing. Just come on through. She quickly offered him a lease. Once they met, she found him. <laughs> there we go again. Charming personable impressed that he was a doctor she found it odd he was interested she called him Mike rather than Dr. Swango this sort of thing I've seen before too where white people just all kinds of things get an apartment check his references did you call other places that he's leased from ah. even double check to make sure he's a doctor nah He goes off and starts uh, killing folks. Let me make sure I get the one. She said uh, he calls Teresa. Her part or make sure I get it in Dominic Buffalo Buffalino. Is that how you say? Yeah, Buffalino. Dominic Buffalino. Uh, where he goes in shouldn't be anything that desperate. I guess they're concerned that he might get pneumonia or what have you. But yeah. Mike Swango works his magic, poisons, kills him, whatever, and then uh, calls up. Oh, sorry to inform you, he he didn't make it. Oh, 
<laughs> so we didn't think he was going to expire, but yeah, he he's not with us anymore. So sorry about that. And then he wants to get all of the details. Oh, don't hang up on me. Oh, Lord, just come on and let us sit with even that, that I want to hang out and sit around you and like I want to absorb all of your pain. Even that's kind of the Captain Kirk that guy. I'm so in charge. I killed him and they don't even know. And I got away with all this. I think someone had said before that he was like the child that got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Like I got away with all this and they don't even know. <laughs> I can just sit here and smirk. Mm, literally the power of life and death in my hands. And I'm fooling them all. See, for racists, they love that too, that I tricked them all. See, they don't even know. I can sit here and comfort them. There, there, Teresa, it's all right. Dominic's in a better place now. It's all right. He's looking down on us. There, there. (laughs) Come on. Like what the caller said that like that's beyond evil. What what type of thinking is that even? Anyway, just got past World War Two, right? He's a veteran. Anyway, pick up there uh, for next week uh, in chapter nine. Uh. Why we haven't even got to Africa yet. I can't emphasize enough the racism aspect. See, it's trickling through with how they're talking about these foreign doctors and all of that. But the racism component is going to get more explicit when we get to the continent. Super flagrant. More to come. Uh, We will be here tomorrow, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific, neutralizing workplace racism. If you have to work for Negro Friday, be safe. Take bear mace, pepper spray, mouthpiece, nose guard, anything else, shin guard. I don't know, maybe a, a, crup, a cup for your growing area. I don't know. They get rowdy. They do the elbow smash and put you in the headlock, all the rest of it. Be safe if you have to work for Negro Friday. Uh, and then we'll be here after all of the carnage uh, has subsided. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. So, but especially for this weekend, man, sobriety would be best. You got to go and get a nip, spiked eggnog or whatever else. Stay with the relatives for tonight and get up and leave Friday sober they'll probably have enforcement officials on the road until Monday so stay safe sober creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cows signing out no name calling no gossiping no throwaway offspring thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.